Hello, everybody. Welcome to Directors Club. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna call it Directors Club from now on, Jim. Okay. It's. It's. That's what it says on iTunes. Uh, I think people get confused if it's the official title is Directors Club or Directors Club Podcast. Really, I never knew that. I got confused uh, when I say Those people, people are fools. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm Patrick Rapole. I am Jim Laskowski. And the voice you just heard that is Ren Brown. The uh, are you now? Are you like main editor at Chud.com? I consider myself a contributing editor. Okay. Oh, great. That's, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that'll work. Definitely, he, he's doing a lot there, writing some good stuff. Um, very excited to Thank have you. him on for the Wachowski, Wachowski's episode. Wachowski's, yes. Yeah, formerly brothers, uh, mm-hmm. now not so much. It's more Zambagos. Little paradigm shift there. Yeah, a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be covering The Matrix and Speed Racer. Yes. Um, both which movies I'm very excited to talk about, because there's a lot of interesting things to talk about both. For sure. Um, uh, but before we do all that, let's just head into uh, what we watched this week. All right. What did we watch this week? What did we watch? What movies we watched? What's the movie? What did we watch? What movies we watched? What's the movie? What did we watch? What movies we watched? The movies we watched. The movies we watched. Um, now, uh, Ren, would you like to go first? Uh, sure. Um, it's actually been a kind of a light past week, um, because we kind of crammed everything in together, Moneyball and Drive and Killer Elite and some of the new stuff that, that has trickled out over the last two or three weeks. Um, and I think, I think Moneyball is the last movie I saw. No, Killer Elite. Killer Elite was the last thing I saw in a theater. Killer Elite is the one with, uh, De Niro and... De Niro, Clive Owen. Yeah. Uh, and then Jason Statham, of course, hmm. being as Jason Statham is. And uh, yeah, it, it's uh, barely worth talking about. Um, it's a little. It's based on a like a pulpy spy novel, so it's a little twistier, and it's a period piece, and it kind of generally has more ambition than most of his films, but uh, it, it doesn't really step up to the plate. So it's pretty pretty standard, rope Statham action movie. Yeah, I, I I wonder. Do you think Jason Statham ever had like a different idea for the kind of actor he'd be? <laughs> Well, he does. He has these little spurs where he's, you know, obviously willing to do very interesting things. Where he's, you know, in movies like Crank and Crank Two, and you know, when yeah. he's been in Guy Ritchie films, he has, you know, artistic instincts. But he, you know, he's a B action actor at the core. So yeah, I just, I just remember really liking. I, I think I saw. I think I actually saw a Snatch before I saw Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, and. I uh, I was like, oh, that guy's really he's like a really great you know smartass, and I thought that would be his thing. He'd be I didn't know he'd be the jump kick guy. <laughs> yeah, right. I I think I first saw him in Ghosts of Mars. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> That's right. it didn't really register very well. Um, so how is Moneyball? I've heard interesting things about that. Yeah, I'm excited uh, for that one. Am I the only one who's seen it, or have you seen it, Jim? Haven't seen it yet. Gonna see. Uh, it this yeah, week. it's uh, it's good. It's it's uh. You know, you can definitely feel Sorkin in the individual scenes, and uh, you know it's kind of a strange movie to break down into acts or into to pieces. Even though the whole movie, you know, with a wide lens, the whole the movie as a whole works really well and is very interesting and fun and entertaining and does all the stuff. And then individual scenes are really you know sparkly and just entertaining and great chewy dialogue. 
but uh, it, it kind of shifts its focus all over the place. You know, sometimes it's really interested in digging into characterizing Billy Bean, and sometimes it's really interested in the struggle between, you know, traditional baseball and the sabermetric statistics approach. Um, so it's it's not anything amazing or, you know, it's going to really stick with you for a long time, but it's it's really entertaining. I keep hearing it's one of the very best films of the year, and, um, you know, I... I'm, two things I'm not very interested in are statistics and baseball. So it wasn't something I was like, you know, gung ho about seeing. But then, you know, hearing Aaron Sorkin had a hand in writing the script, you know, what he did with Social Network was pretty extraordinary. So uh, right. I'm sure I'm sure I'm going to get into this movie the more and more I hear about it. See, it's one of those things where it's like I know I know nothing about what sabermetrics even is. That yeah. I think it might. be go the other way with me that I might find it really intriguing and, and really love it. That's yeah. quite likely. Um, well, kind of in the way that, you know, hacking and coding and the, you know, the nitty gritty of building, you know, a, a business was made so fascinating in the social network. He was able to apply that to the sabermetric stuff or, you know, that some of the most enjoyable scenes are the really technical ones between Jonah Hill and Brad Pitt, even if the overall structure of the film just isn't as sophisticated as social network. Right. For example. Yeah. 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 Well, that, I mean, that's the sort of thing that uh, most interested me about uh, social network, and I think that is the sort of thing that seems really interesting to me in Moneyball. Now, is there actual? Uh, what's the character arcs like? What's the actual story about? Well, you have Billy Bean, and uh, he's you know working with a team that has an extremely limited budget compared to you know other teams like the Yankees that have you know almost triple what they have. Um, so faced with that and the fact that he loses three very strong players, um, he kind of catches on to this kid who has a you know very different, you know, innovative way of looking at you know purchasing or you know offering contracts to players who may not be stars or may not have general all around talent, but have very unique abilities or very specific talents that when kind of all put together in concert will just get more runs and statistically win more games across a large enough sample size. Right. But um, unfortunately, things like uh, the coach played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, Art House, I think his character's name is, but uh, like they, they, there's all these traditional old baseball people involved with the team that just do not get it and mm-hmm. don't want to have any part of it. So the team, they, they don't play the team how it's supposed to be played, so they continue to lose until you know all kinds of strategic kind of inside baseball politics literally happens and you know yeah exactly and being kind of gets his way and but uh because of the you know the real life facts of the team they didn't go on to win the world series that year or anything they kind of have to attach the climax to uh you know like individual games in the season that in real life were maybe not necessarily that important but you know the way they structure them in the film they kind of elevate the importance or pull out a very specific, you know, message or whatever. It doesn't. And, end, uh, it doesn't end like ahead. the natural, right? <laughs> no, no. Okay. No, it's uh, it's it. In terms of Billy Bean, the you know Brad Pitt, who is clearly the central character, like there's nobody else who gets even a fraction of a like Joan Hill has no arc. Uh, it's all Billy Bean, and he uh, he's basically struggling with the idea of you know doing just good enough or going all the way. You know, tradition and the romance, because he's, he's constantly fighting with himself about the romance of baseball mm-hmm. and yet trying to look at it from this very analytical left brain sense and those two kind of instincts of his fighting it out. Right. Cool. I'm really, 
I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, he, he, Billy Bean. He started off as a as a baseball player himself, who didn't really uh, succeed. And so, right. okay, yeah, that's what I thought. So maybe he's trying to, you know, continue or try to find some success in the way he approaches uh, managing. Exactly. Uh, so yeah. that's that's cool. I'm really. And there's excited. a lot of flashbacks to kind of oh. his rise mm. through baseball and decline, so to speak. And there, there's a really awesome moment between him and Jonah Hill in which he basically flat out asked Jonah Hill, you know, according to your system, would you have drafted me first round? And Jonah Hill just basically has to flatly tell him that, no, I, w- I would have drafted you like ninth round with no signing bonus. And it's, you know, so the reality of it is something he has to face throughout the whole movie. And it's really great. I see. I'm really fascinated by sort of, I don't know exactly who you would call them, but, uh, like basically, I would say they're not a Rat Pack or anything, but it just every, all the the cast of the Oceans movies, the Matt Damon's <laughs> and Brad Pitt's and George Clooney's, mm, yeah. and like I'm really interested in how they're aging because like and especially I think like Brad Pitt, I saw him in Tree of Life. There's no pretty boy left in him. No, he's, not at all. He's really uh, grown into something pretty great. And like what's yeah. the like I can't remember the last bad movie he did. Uh, Hmm. Yeah, that's what, a tough one. Yeah, like was that Mr. and Mrs. Smith? Like he he kind of <laughs> Yeah, that might be it. He kind of gave up on doing, you know, just shitty major Hollywood movies and Yeah, he's been yeah, a lot and more he's careful. still managed pretty good financial success as well. He hasn't had a lot of flops on his hand. Right. Yeah. Um yeah, so and certainly no uh like, you know, critical flops. I mean, you can't <laughs> uh, you know, Inglorious Bastards, Tree of Life, these are really um Ben Button's questionable, but you can, you know, they're Oh, that's right. There was no, you know, corporate agenda in getting involved with that movie, I think. Right, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not a um, – I don't know. I actually haven't seen it, so I don't think I could really even speak to um, that. He vo- he does, he's, he's done voices in, like, Megamind, and he's in Happy Feet 2, and he's got World War Z coming up, which is, you know, pretty commercial. Oh, but um, yeah. I don't even – I never consider voices to even be – like, that's a, yeah. that's that's, like, almost like doing a spot on SNL. Like, it's just such <laughs> – like, oh, you go in for three hours a day for two weeks, and then you... Right, you get credit if it's a Pixar movie, otherwise it just kind of that's, slides off your IMDb page. That's true. People in Pixar, they get they get so much more credit, because all the movies are better. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. Uh, no, I'm looking forward to it, because, I mean, it's strange how... I'm not crazy about sports in general, but I love movies about sports, and... You know, even something like behind the scenes, I think, would be interesting just to see. I, like when I heard who directed it, the guy who did um, Capote, I believe, is his only right. other movie. And uh, I liked Capote. I didn't think it was. I think it was more just uh, you know focused on on how amazing Philip Seymour Hoffman was. But cinematically, I didn't really think there was anything special about you know the, the way he, he directed that movie. Um, so I'm not like going no, there. By the way, what was that? Bennett Miller, by the way. Oh, yeah. Bennett Miller. Correct. Yeah. Um, so, no, I'm, the more and more I hear about this movie, um, the more and more I'm excited to see it. When I mean, I think the trailer, I was like, okay, maybe. That's a maybe for me, like, in terms of my excitement level for it. But um, I don't know. I, I like Steven Zalian. Steven Zalian, he uh, co-wrote the screenplay with Aaron Sorkin. And Steven Zalian did one of my all-time favorite... I mean, he's he's written a lot of great screenplays, but he's one of my all-time favorite movies he also directed, which is uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer. Oh. Fantastic movie. It's yeah. like one of my favorites. Excellent cast. Everything about it, I think it, it's one of those... 
tight movies that really hits home, like you can relate to it. And uh, what great uh, child actor in that movie too. Um, it's just one of those movies that you know you know where it's going, you know what to expect, but everything about it just works perfectly and effortlessly. Um, so yeah, I, but then again, he did. Um, a, a movie I haven't seen that everybody said was horrible that was supposed to be a big Oscar contender, uh, all the King's Men that year. Um, oh, that's it's it's not horrible. It's just super yeah. bland. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So uh, I I watched uh, I watched uh, Drive, um, and before we even talk about it, I want to maybe Ren um, Jim, you have not seen it, not yet. Sadly. But uh, but Ren, you have seen it. Yes. Um. I want to before we even discuss the movie. I I don't really care about spoilers that much, but there are people who do, and our policy is basically if a movie is less than two years old, we won't do spoilers. But anything right. uh, anything older than that, uh, we'll just we'll we'll go ahead and spoil it. But I wouldn't spoil anything in the last act. Just for well, me. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, okay, but I, I like, know the basics, and I've seen the trailer. The thing about Drive, like one of the main things about that movie is just. It's not a movie with a lot of twists and turns. It's a movie that has this really heavy, inevitable feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure. Where the second you see, you know, for example, the second you see Ryan Gosling and Carrie Mulligan, they just share an elevator together because they're neighbors. Um, like this is in the first five minutes, not spoiling anything. I um, <laughs> and just the, from that moment, you kind of know that this is not, you know, this is going to go like this is not going to end well. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I, I don't know. I don't want to spoil the movie, but at the same time, I don't think you can. Uh, there's there's not a single point in the movie where I was really surprised. Uh, and that's actually – we got an email um, from someone who saw uh, Drive. Um, let me just go ahead and highlight. He did not like it. He was a not a fan at all. And he said uh, he was the most overrated film he's seen this year. Um, I've been hearing that. I've been hearing some – Detractors. Backlash was in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, and he actually did talk about how in the Nolan podcast we talked about how the critical hype machine can sometimes Mm -hmm. uh, work against a movie. Um, uh, But he said that the way things out were played incredibly predictable, and the violence was gratuitous. Um, Uh. I number one again. I I wouldn't say predictable. I would say inevitable. (laughs) Like. Uh, you know, um, and the violence definitely is not there for no reason, which is basically... But I hear it's very graphic. It's, oh, it's extremely graphic. Um, and I think, but it's kind of necessary. Uh, now this is what I want to talk about you, Ren. Uh, and again, I don't think this is really spoiling anything. Um, Ryan Gosling's character in Drive. I've, I've read a lot of different things, a lot of different takes. Uh, I know... Our friend Nordling at, at Ain't It Cool News uh, surmised that he might possibly be retarded in some way or, like, <laughs> mentally disabled. Uh, Devin uh, Faraci from Badass Digest, formerly of Chud, he, he, he talked about how cool Ryan Gosling was. Um, I kind of felt like it was a punch-drunk love kind of a character. I think you uh I think you're on the right track there as far as I I'm I can see. Like uh I there like even the sort of the things that he has which are like signifiers of cool like his toothpicks and he has a he has like a I don't know even know what kind of material the jacket's made out of but has a big 
uh, embroidered scorpion on the back of it. Like it feels, <laughs> it feels like a really lame, like child's version of cool. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, so I guess, yeah, I guess. So I guess my question to you is: Do you think? Uh, that we're supposed to... What do you think of the character, I guess? Well, uh, kind of to to hit all that, for one thing, hitting the inevitability, your point about inevitability and everything, I think part of the reason that Drive is so excellent and one of the best movies of the year is, A, because it, it does the bedrock of a crime film, of, you know, just kind of an 80s, you know, crime thriller extremely well yes kind of it's a weird comparison but almost the way Shaun of the dead taking away all the comedy and all the you know the sophistication of the script is just a damn good zombie movie it's the same thing here reffin built a really well casted well performed well put together action crime movie and then on top of that he slathered on all this artistic you know beautiful interest and you know nuance um so that I think that's why that works. And but when you dig into it, to you know Gosling's performance, it is a, you know kind of an odd sort of thing. He's very quiet, but I, I don't think he's retarded or anything like that. <laughs> I think he might be socially retarded a little right. bit. Um, you can kind of feel the heaviness mm-hmm. of his past, even though it's completely left blank. Like you get from zero allusion to what he's been through, but you get the feeling that it was kind of heavy. You know, yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. it is. Um, the whole movie. Uh, if I, I, if, I, I thought it, if like, it felt like it was almost in slow motion. It's, it's only about like a hundred, maybe 108 minutes, but it, I couldn't tell if it was 80 minutes or two hours. Like, right. uh, just everything about that movie feels very thick and heavy. Uh, and Absolutely. that's, that's definitely part of it. Um, I remember, uh, in Bronson, there was a lot of slow-mo too. Like he'd just be even on the stage or whatever and sort of, you know, amping up the, um, theatricality of everything. I remember being really taken by that in Bronson, whereas in other movies, like I mean, I felt like it represented his character and how he perceived himself. So if this movie, if he dials it down, is what you're saying? Like, there's not a lot of that. No, it's not. It's not Bronson for sure. Though uh, I, um, I think this movie it feels a lot more cohesive. That's my one sort of complaint with Bronson is I'm not sure it all came together as a satisfying whole. Um, but this movie. Yeah, it's definitely dialed down. It's minimalistic to the to like uh, the point where it's like, it's almost aggressively minimalistic. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it, right. it, it it sort of challenges you the way it holds shots and the way that relationships are so simple, um, and it, it really makes you uh, dive in. And I think all of that works in its favor because I think the character of Gosling is not a uh, is it? I think it's Ryan O'Neill in The Driver. Yeah. He's he's not that. He's not some very cool. I mean, he's calm in that. He's cool in that way. He's very calm, but um, I don't think he's supposed to be some kind of hip uh, Zen uh, sort of samurai. I think we're you because this movie is so slow and so heavy. You're forced to sort of look at him uh, and sort of contemplate his motivations. Um, so I think it works in that favor in that it it makes it more about the character as opposed to if it was a normal crime thriller uh, and just things happened and it was tight and taut, um, then you wouldn't really have as much time or as uh, much reason to examine the the character. Like I when I the Driver is one of my favorite movies. Um, I yeah. never watching that think I never watching that really give much thought about Ryan O'Neill's character in it. 
because it's just that's what he is. He is what he is, and then he's a driver. Yeah, he, <laughs> and he's good. He at has it. a tool. He is a you yeah. know, and then Gosling because of the way the movie's shot, you really do sort of focus on that. Interesting. Now there is one complaint. Think, oh yeah, go ahead, Ren. Well, uh, if you hear Ruffin or Gosling talk about the film, uh, something they focus on is the idea that the character is very enamored with this industry and this town that he's in, and that this character, you know, as blank slate as he kind of is, has bought into the fantasy of Hollywood and is kind of living out his own, you know, superhero origin almost. That You know, yeah. we're seeing this from his eyes. So there's this romance and this, this beauty and this, this slow motion and the, the, you know, the trickling lights and things that are all just, you know, Arting up, for lack of a better term, you know something very stark and very spare, very hmm. simple. That and, I mean, uh, that's a really good point about the superhero. Uh, I did ask. I asked on uh, on Facebook. I, I asked if people thought that his jacket was supposed to be cool, and I I'm, apologize. I can't remember the person's name who responded, but one person responded, "It's not supposed to be cool. It's supposed to be his cape." <laughs> and I huh. I really liked that uh, that sort of description. So right, it's like tonic rather than cool. Right, like, exactly. That describes everything in the movie, really. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, too, because I haven't seen the movie yet, but I've heard the uh, soundtrack and the score, and there's that one song um, about being a superhero. Yes, that's the it opens and closes the movie. Oh, really? Um, and it's pretty much sort of the theme song, which is... And that's and that's another thing huh. that sort of made my mind connect it to Punch Drunk Love, because there's that reading of Punch Drunk Love where that's... Paul Thomas Anderson's version of a superhero movie. Wow. Um, have you seen Super yet? I have not. That's you should. A, um, that's what... Uh, Great movie. Great the, movie. Email, the email compared uh, this film to James Gunn's Super, and said huh. he said he thought Super was a far superior and more entertaining experience. But and then, but there is one other complaint that uh, our reader, who just goes by the name of John, <laughs> uh, had in his email, which I do kind of agree with in that Mulligan was very miscast. Um, I, hmm. I mean, mm, I don't know if I can roll with that one. I, my problem with, I understand like Mulligan is like this, Carrie Mulligan is like this, this perfect, like angel sort of like, she just seems so sweet Ugh. and wholesome. I uh, know. I know. I like, um, so, and to that extent, I see her, like, becoming this representation of love and purity in Ryan Gosling's mind. And that way, I think her she was well cast. But on the other hand, that she was at a, at a party, and then this sort of hardened cholo came up to her and did this horrible pickup line. And then that they eventually, you know, had a kid together. Like, that doesn't, it didn't, I didn't really buy her, her and her, uh, her husband. See, I, I did. She really struck me as that kind of woman that I feel like I've known several times in my life where just this, you know, very pure, demure kind of woman has this illogical, very subtle attraction to, like, just pieces of shit. <laughs> and and, and I, even if you kind of interpret yeah. Gosling as kind of a sociopathic monster who ultimately throughout the film is revealing himself more and more as a monster rather than a superhero, right. then that reading works even better. But I can understand not everybody would buy it, and it, it registered for me. I feel like she could pull off the damsel in distress. Well, it's not, it's, not, yeah, well. it's not so much damsel in distress um, as much as she had it, like, I don't know, and uh, maybe that's just, I have preconceived notions I'm, of her. I'm, I'm that excited I, to watch her. That I brought I'm on. excited to watch her career because after I saw an education... 
I said she could go. I mean, just based on that performance alone, I thought this she could go on to to be a, a Kate Winslet. I mean, I don't know if she's going to get to that point anytime soon, but um, I'm interested in watching her evolve as an actress. Mm-hmm. And plus, I think she's super cute. So, and um, I, I mean, we we talked a lot about Drive, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I'm I got to talk about his other movie that I watched really quickly. I do I do want to say real quick, uh, everything else you heard about the movie is totally true. Uh, Albert Brooks is incredible. Um, the soundtrack is incredible. Uh, it no, sure is. <laughs> Albert Brooks is insanely good. Um, he's and, really good. He's, he was just well cast, though. Like that. What a beautiful strategic yeah. piece of cast. And no, and when I heard it, I'm like, oh, he must really transformed himself into. Because I'm thinking the Albert Brooks of real life. You know, I'm thinking <laughs> like this. I'm thinking of Albert. Brooke, and, and like, oh, he must have really transformed himself for this That's role. Right. He did set the house on fire at the end of real life. Well, I'm, but like <laughs> the way that he plays like a, a mob boss is, yeah, it like is like a Hollywood, it's like a Hollywood producer. No, exactly, <laughs> and st- it quintessentially still. I think that's even part of his character's background, right? That he was formerly Hollywood a Hollywood producer. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he made eighty eighties movies, action movies. He thought they were shit, but they were called European. Kind <laughs> of a very meta line in the middle of it. Yeah, this, yeah. This uh, is like a dream cast for me. Like, no, it's really good. Every, every person I'm in love with right now at this moment in time is in this movie. I mean, I've always kind of loved Albert Brooks since I was a kid and I saw Lost in America and Defending Your Life. Um, but I'm, I feel like I've built this movie up so much in my mind that I'm going to be let wow. down. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's again what our reader John talked about, which I don't think this is like... When you think – everyone's saying it's one of the best movies of the year. I agree, but I don't think it's uh, like an Oscar kind of movie at all. I don't think it's a movie that necessarily is, says a whole lot about the human condition or anything like that. Like it's not hmm. – I, I don't go in – like well, I think what makes this movie so special is how odd it is as opposed to the fact that it's like a perfectly – you know, a perfect – constructed you know I, right. what I, yeah so. what's funny is that it would almost seem to be the, a kind of oscar movie because it's fusing you know the core shallow hollywood values with you know european inaccessible art sensibilities <laughs> so you would think it would be a perfect amalgam that the, the academy would love but yeah it's very i think i think it's just not accessible enough um right it's just too quiet at some point. By the way, uh, AMC Theaters, thanks a lot for uh, making sure to screen this in the theater with the buzzing speaker. Because in all oh, of the quiet sh- moments, uh, they they really helped. All all of those moments where the soundtrack is practically silent, and I just uh, heard this movie has such a beautiful sound mix. That's really yeah. That's a shame. When when like the music was playing, when people were talking, when the action was happening, you couldn't hear it. But once things got quiet. It was just really. It's annoying. kind of funny because speaking of sound, if I, if I take a ten-second issue with one of the points that you made or that were made about the movie being so violent, yeah, is that I think it's much like a Tarantino movie in that it's really not that violent. If you actually listed the number of shots that have gore in them, there's like four or five, and it's really the sound design and the way violence is presented that's so memorable. For example, the elevator scene. You really only see the result of what he does, even though it's such a gruesome scene. The same I, with uh, someone who gets a, a shotgun to the face. I won't say who, yeah. but you, know, you get a quick reaction, and that's really it. I will say I'm kind of disappointed that the elevator scene is in the trailer because I already have a 
preconceived not, notion of it's what, not in the trail what what makes that scene so well, special she, is not in the trailer okay um, it, i mean but yeah, i see I, I, yeah i see like you know he kisses her and then he beats up a guy yeah it's the way it's shot though it's the kiss is a lot longer Good. Um, context. And the, it's all context. That's yeah. It's I'm all context. About that. It's not you. That's that's not a money shot. And nothing was spoiled for you. I have to bring up um, really quickly. I didn't want to use this one up as my what we watched, so I'm going to talk about it in like a sentence. But if everybody has loved Drive as much as they've, I've heard, people have to go find this movie. It's really I like. I had to download it basically. But um, Bleeder, which is his uh, same director. From 1999, it's one of his earlier works. He made it after he made the first uh, Pusher movie. This movie, re- like you were talking about um, the human condition, to me this movie really represented male insecurity uh, and masculinity in a very, very interesting way with like three different characters, one who expresses himself externally, one who internalizes everything, and then another who's like completely socially awkward. He can barely talk to anybody. Huh. Um, three different representations of the male psyche that I was like completely in awe of. And the way he sets everything up with each character having like their own soundtrack, like it really cuts abruptly. Like he'll play one song and then we'll move over to another character. He plays a different song and they sort of represent their personalities. I knew from like the first ten minutes of this movie I was going to be into it, just because it was very stylistically interesting. I suppose all of his movies are about masculinity, really. Yeah, um, for sure. That's I, interesting. I'm, I'm interested in seeing Fear X, which I never heard of until I looked up his uh, resume, and it's got John Turturro in it. Um, but that's another oh, one. I've heard of that. And the yeah. screenplay is by Hubert Selby Jr. And the music is by Brian Eno. I'm like, holy fuck! This movie is for me too. <laughs> Yeah. So I don't know. I'm 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 excited about this guy. I we'll see what he does next and he's doing something else with Ryan Gosling. Yeah. Uh really quickly, I wanted to talk about the movie I saw, which is one of three that I've had time to see these past couple weeks, but I caught up with Contagion being um a, a big Steven Soderbergh fan. Great uh, movie. It is. Absolutely. It's one of my favorites of the year and uh a lot of it a lot of the criticisms towards it have been it's too cold. It's too clinical. There's not a lot of humanity. What the? I mean, to me, that's that's. I mean, there's. It's about a virus, <laughs> and a virus has no humanity. Um, I mean, I, I guess you could say, you know, if they're like maybe a total of six subplots, if you would have nixed one, maybe the Marion uh, Cotillard subplot, it might have been a stronger movie overall. But I, I was pretty much into every character. I didn't find anything that, you know, took away from the experience because I thought, um, you know, it's sort of, you know, in a very subtle way kind of touched on, you know, in like how we respond to um, threats and like uh, a public health response to something or, you know, how pervasive everything is. I mean, June Law plays a blogger who tries to control the situation at one point by saying he has a cure for the disease and right. that whole subplot I found really interesting the sort of uh, interplay between him and the uh, and Lawrence Fishburne's character uh, he's uh, in, uh, part of the uh, CDC the Center for Disease Control um, I, I like just sort of the mass hysteria is kind of underplayed which I thought was really interesting because it's not you know kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, 28 Days Later and uh just like, I mean, not necessarily like how the hyperkinetic style is there. It's more, it's like traffic, um, sort of underplayed. I also thought a little bit of Syriana. 
Uh, but it's not like, you know, the, the narrative style, it, it progresses very traditionally. It's not like jumps back and forth and between different um, points in time. And I, I don't know. I thought, like, maybe at the end, there, you know, there's a moment of humanity that kind of comes out of nowhere because you're not expecting it. But I thought that was very effective. And, you know, it's, it's an excellent film. And I think Steven Soderbergh's a, a great filmmaker. I mean, I think I like this not quite as much as The Informant because it was just a completely different, unexpected Steven Soderbergh movie from, from him. Like, and Matt Damon's performance was so fucking great in that, too. Um, but overall, I think I, I really, really like this movie a lot. And, I mean, I'm kind of biased being a Soderbergh fan, but I thought everybody in the cast, even if they don't have large amounts of screen time, they, they make their presence known and give really good, great, strong performances. Maybe Matt Damon just needs to be chubby or gain weight, and he gives <laughs> even better performances. You know what they call Soderbergh fans? People who like movies. <laughs> That's, that's his. That's you know, yeah. like, you know, like Jimmy Buffett has parrot heads. Soderbergh has uh, movie fans, right? Yeah, I think I can get behind every word of that about Contagion, and it's one of the. Few, it was one of the first movies I gave a perfect score to this year. I, I absolutely love it. I think it's. I don't know if it's perfect. You know, that's kind of hard thing to call, but there's nothing that I would alter. I think it's a really beautiful, it really blockbuster, but very independently minded movie it's it's really great it really got under my skin and i was i was uh, yeah yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, <laughs> i had to get out the hand sanitizer throughout the entire movie after this Just it like, really attacked my white blood cells <laughs> if you know what i mean i was surprised oh, that Sa- i was surprised that, that sasha gray didn't play the virus Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my one question: these kind of movies, sort of, and it's what I've read about this movie that sort of most intrigues me about it. I, I have not gotten a chance to see it, um, but uh, is is the sense of scale? Um, now, uh, does this movie have like uh, what does this movie do with the sort of scale? Like, do you see it on a uh, people reacting to it on a number of levels? And yeah, you see it yeah. at the widest possible lens and the most narrow possible lens. Like, you don't see the president because the president really doesn't matter. You see the people at the head of the CDC and right. the head in the forefront of the triage operations. But then you also see you know Matt Damon, who's like first individual human being affected you know by things yeah. so you see it at both levels you see the interpersonal relation that he has with, with the with his family and how that affects on a very personal level and that's why it's like when people say there's no humanity i'm kind of kind of surprised because i mean you know the the the, the scene with him and the doctor not you know obviously it's not giving away to say that gwyneth paltrow dies early in the film because i think everybody knows that at this point um kind of in the trailer yeah it is in the trailer too um, so that, that whole, that whole scene I thought was beautifully played. And, um, I think, yeah, like, like I was kind of disappointed that John Hawks is kind of underused. Like he has maybe two or three scenes, but it's one of those movies where there's so much strong stuff that even if a couple people get sidetracked, I don't think it takes away from, from the rest of the movie. But I, I mean, it's possible that if you would have just trimmed one storyline, um, it might have improved things, but I, at the same time, I don't think it took away either. I, I really like seeing the Marion Cotillard story. I mean, it played out in what maybe three or four or five scenes. Yeah. Uh, what it what it said, what it, what it was in kind of the overall tapestry of the film, what it was saying about humanity, or what you know, it's kind of alluding to that would happen in such a scenario was, 
I think worth being in, and she played it so well, you know that it that it spoke volumes in a very short amount of time. I think that a lot of there's a lot of stuff like that. If forgive the comparison, it's almost like a Harry Potter movie where they cast these really immaculate actors in these tiny little moments mm-hmm. just so they have a you know much larger impression than their screen time would you know ultimately give them. Yeah, I sort of like that he didn't overplay the kind of like the mist a little bit like. You know, there's there's a couple of scenes where you see mass hysteria and, you know, the, the collective mentality of people going crazy over what's happening. There's a couple of scenes like that, but for the most part, you're dealing with, with most of these characters on an individual response, too. I mean, you, like you mentioned, there is yeah. the government involved, and you see meetings between lots of people discussing how they're going to deal with this uh, pandemic. But overall, I think it was a really unique experience, and... I thought it was a very effective kind of a horror movie for for Soderbergh. Right. I love I love movies. I, I can't wait to see it because I love movies that really um, <clears throat> show things uh, like happening on multiple levels at once. Whether yeah. it's I think Die Hard is a perfect example of that. Where that's uh, I, I think it was uh, Andre Delamorte who once commented like it's it's sort of the first modern movie because everyone's mm-hmm. all connected to each other. Um, through yeah. technology throughout that whole film, uh, I think uh, David Cronenberg's Rage, which sort of was a zombie movie that was dealt with as almost if it was a uh, outbreak kind of film, was interesting in the way that you saw it on an individual level who got bit and why, yeah, and how it. And that's why you're a big fan of The Wire too. I mean, I've only seen yeah, one yeah. season, but I can see that's that's a huge strength of that show. Absolutely, um, yeah. I. I like, uh, and I mean, even if even on just a structural level, you want to talk about something like Inception, where you're seeing uh, things happening and affecting each other on multiple levels, just through different times. I mean, that's more of a fantasy example, but it's still very uh, fun to watch. Yeah, and this so, is a very entertaining movie. I mean, it's kind of a downer overall, but yeah. still, it's it's excellent. I think it has a hopeful message. No, ultimately. yeah, it does at the end for sure. And it and not and when you say that, you don't mean it in a. Like when David Cronenberg was asked about Shivers, they said, why is, you, why is the movie so depressing? And he goes, well, it's not depressing if you look at it from the perspective of the virus. <laughs> like, no. No, I think it's, it's a generally you know, humanist movie, the idea that you know, shit will go down and things will get really bad. But you know, ultimately, some kind of human ingenuity will, will mean prevail. we ultimately overcome, even right. if we're you know, wounded for it. But Cool. But I ain't shaking any hands. Also, uh, I do owe, just real quick, I do owe an apology to Eric Childress. Um, this movie trounced The Warrior. Uh, <sighs> Which I need to see, too. Even on a just per screen average. This, uh, In case you don't know, Ren, on the Christopher Nolan episode. Uh, I did, I heard. Okay, I heard, Eric, and, uh, we, had a, we had a debate. I, I thought there was no way this movie was going to make more than uh, Warrior. Um, I'll but, be honest. In my car while I was listen, listening to that, I was just going, "What the fuck is Patrick <laughs> yeah, talking about?" Let's let's just go ahead and say we don't listen to Patrick when it comes to box office. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Actually, you should listen, to Eric, because he's he studies that as part of like, oh, really? one of the websites he writes for. So he knows that shit pretty yeah. well. And I don't. Pretty right. but, uh, good. So uh, you owe Eric a beer, I guess, or whatever. Okay, uh, I think we're ready to move on to the director of this week. Um, the Wachowskis. Not the Laskowskis. Yeah. The Wachowskis. Which 
Trashkey, Shottown, born and raised. Critics sounded praise. Book found in 96, about two chicks in the mafia suitcase. Wachowski's own 1999. Matrix and bullet time. Ever imitated school, the truth is the film still stands the test of time. Wachowski's did the sequels too. Alright, to tell the truth, I'm not so hot on them. They're pretty boring and confusing too. Wachowski's adapted Alan Moore. Alan, ask what for? He disowned the film, but it's still pretty good. A solid three out of four. Wachowski bros, now one's a sis. Now one's a sis. Wachowski bros, now one's a sis. Now one's a sis. Wachowski bros, now one's a sis. Now one's a sis. Wachowski bros, now one's a sis. Now one's a sis. He said, let's get married in the mall. The Wachowskis consist of Andy Wachowski, born Andrew Paul Wachowski in 1967, and Lena Wachowski, born Lawrence Wachowski in 1965. They grew up in Chicago where they were raised on a steady diet of comic books, Tolkien, and later, anime. Before breaking into the film business with their script, Assassins, they were college dropouts who ran a carpentry business and wrote comics. In 1996, they released their first film, Bound, a low-profile but critically acclaimed Hitchcockian thriller with an erotic charge. But it was 1999's The Matrix which introduced them to the world at large. With its kinetic kung fu, mind-bending story, and cyberpunk edge, The Matrix became not just one of the most talked-about movies of the year, but of the decade. Whoa. Have you ever had a dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? What is happening to me? The answer is out there, Neo. It's the question that drives us. What is the Matrix? The Matrix is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? They're watching you, Neo. Human beings are a disease. You are a cancer of this planet. And we are the cure. Get me the hell out of here! Welcome to the real world. I described the plot of The Matrix uh, right at this point, but you know the plot of The Matrix. There's no. <laughs> I sure hope you've seen it. I don't think there's anybody who would listen to a film podcast uh, who's and that nerdy but still Matrix. has never seen The Matrix. Um, so I'll just uh, get right into it. Now, Ren, this is – I'm not sure if this is your favorite film, but this is the film that sent you to film school, right? Uh, yeah, I think it's probably hmm. fair to say that it's my favorite film, and it is most certainly not only the film that sent me to film school, it is the film that – got me interested in film and led me down the path of, of getting involved in the industry. Right, exactly. Um, and it's, I can imagine you're one of many similar stories. Uh, For sure, certainly. As uh, as any uh, film like this that sort of just takes the zeitgeist. Um, I wonder how this film would have played for me if I'd seen it when I was like 16 or 17 and just sort of coming into my own as a film buff. Because I saw it when I was uh, 21. I think it opened on a Wednesday in March, if I recall. And mm-hmm. I was like, the trailers are like making me think, oh, it's going to be Johnny Mnemonic again or whatever. And then I fucking was like, what the f-? Like it blew me across <laughs> the entire theater. Like it worked on everything. It, I think you're maybe one of the only people. Um, you The reason you really wanted to see it was you didn't like the trailers, but you knew the Wachowskis did Bound. And you really of course. Liked- 
course. You were a fan of Bound. Yeah. <laughs> ba- again, Bound was one of those movies didn't look that spectacular to me when I saw the trailers for it. I was like, oh, I could watch this on Showtime at 2 a.m. Right. Know? It's one of those films. Yeah. And w- what? Yeah. It's like that was kind of my <laughs> response at the end of that movie when the tra- when the credits were rolling. It was like me and four guys as in some, the entire theater. As someone who I wasn't – I'd probably say I was maybe like 13 or something when I saw this for the first – I can't remember the exact age, but – this was definitely like just the greatest thing I had ever seen. <laughs> yeah, that, um, no, nineteen ninety nine was a fucking great year. That's true. Yes, it was. And uh, even you know, even big Hollywood movies such as this. Yeah, uh, it like just. Uh, I, I mean, I don't even know where to really start. There's so many good things about it, and I don't want to talk too much about what everyone already you know knows because it's certainly a film that has been talked about more than most that we discuss on this uh podcast yeah Yeah, no that's true i hadn't Um, thought of that it's like there are things you could bring up um but i guess i will will say that i guess rewatching it years later though there are questions well no no i got questions and i'll address them but i don't want to start off with my complaints i want to praise it because it's i think it's you know it's mostly a great movie um but uh like I think, I think what makes it work so well uh, is just that all of the exposition for the world. Uh, now it's funny because when we were talking about Christopher Nolan, Eric Childress, uh, when I was complaining about the uh, the sort of what I feel it was clunky exposition in Inception, uh, he brought up the Matrix. Actually, I did, but that's oh, okay. You did, yeah. Okay, and right. I, I had not seen it for quite some time at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't. I didn't. And I. And then when I was looking back, I'm like, "Oh, was the exhibition clunky?" And it really isn't because it's, it's all like. And this is a movie I've seen like ten times, so everything that Morpheus is telling me, I already know. But right. Um, number one, the way the world is built is through this amazing uh, sort of uh, visual, ex- like sort of ride that he takes Neo on. Mm-hmm. Uh, this little virtual reality ride where he goes and visits different places, and then chairs appear randomly (laughs) like uh it's very visual it's not just people talking at each other like say inception um number two it's all rooted in the main characters uh you know sort of journey uh it's you're experiencing it as he experiences it right um it's not for example told to an ancillary character like ellen page in inception i think all of the exposition really goes down very smooth um and i I think it it does a great job of building a world um, and letting your mind fill in a lot of the blanks. That's that's a huge point, and uh, yeah. I think you know that it ultimately reflects on why I think this movie there is no in any alternate universe good sequels to the Matrix, which I'm sure we will touch on later. But uh, and the, the the difference between this and Inception is you know Inception you're 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 hearing about the construct and the mechanisms of this world that exists only in this movie for the purpose of this movie, whereas in the Matrix you're learning about history you're learning about the philosophy of different you know sides of a war you're learning about the mechanisms of the, these you know different layers at the same time you're learning that these different paradigms exist. And it's all done in a sort of like iceberg manner where you're just getting the little tiny tips of, you know, you're getting, you're hearing about Zion, you're, you're hearing about the war. You're, you're, how, you're, you're in the Oracle's uh, waiting room and there's all these other potential <laughs> ones and it makes you think right. about what ships they're all with. And, uh, it's all saying a lot with a very little and it's all illusion 
it's it, you know most of it is is shown and some of it is told, but it's all alluding to bigger things that your imagination gets to fill in. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I'm not saying I definitely don't think no good sequels could come from it. I mean, but I definitely understand what you're saying is it's not a movie that needed sequels or particularly wanted them, <laughs> and it's and and but the and the ideas it raises are very uh, intriguing. It's very much uh, sort of a cyberpunk 101. Uh, a lot of the basic, just the mind as a computer, um, the different ideas of what reality is, uh, the existential cr- uh, questions that all of that raises, like all brought up in a manner that doesn't doesn't feel bullshit, right. uh, but at the same time doesn't weigh the movie down at all. Um, That's how I felt about Strange Days when I saw that movie too. Oh, yeah. Like I felt it worked on a very interesting level where all those things that you mentioned come into play and yet it never feels it it feels like it could happen in some strange way i mean it's obviously it's you know uh, a simulated world a simulated reality and yet there were like things about it's like oh i you know what i could see maybe at some point in the future our memories and experiences being put on a little mini disc that we get to re-experience yeah you know it's like things like that seem possible because i've read enough scientific research and crazy like and that's the thing that kind of bothers me about people who've complained about the matrix saying things like oh they just read a like a cliff's notes version of physics and philosophy and well yeah i mean what what do you expect from a like it's not like scientific formulas and you know like all hard all hard sci-fi does that though yeah Yeah, and this is not a problem yeah but i mean but what makes them but what makes all of those questions work um, and again, not, I don't want to spend too much time talking about the sequels, but what in, to put in strict contrast with what the sequels don't do is those all of those conversations and questions and ideas are risen as the plot goes forward, and it's a very propulsive mm-hmm. movie. Um, I always I'm always surprised by how little like actually happens in the movie. It's always it goes right from it goes right from he meets Trinity and then he. You know, he meets Trinity, and then he runs from the agents, and then he's taken out of the Matrix, and da da da. Like it's all quick, and you don't really have, um, as opposed to like you know other movies or anime that it were in, that inspire, like Ghost in the Shell, like has just scenes where it just stops, and the characters just talk about their existence and what yeah. it means, um, and then the movie goes on, and then you know, uh, and I think that's what it works. Now, obviously. More, even more than on a story level, I think this is a stylistic triumph. Um, yeah, because there, there hadn't been anything like this before. No, and again, it could be considered a mashup. But well, it, it, what it does right is it it mashes up a lot of elements, but it never feels like it feels like one thing. It never feels like a hodgepodge. Right. Um, it's all also integrated in with just a, a profoundly excellent understanding of, of just sheer filmmaking craft in terms of how to move the camera, where, how to edit, how to tell a story with camera movement, you know, how to block scenes, that kind of thing. Every beat of the edit is just remarkable. It yeah. really is. That's how um, I felt about Bound as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it might, I, I don't not, I don't think Bound it does it better, but I think because Bound has less other things distracting you, it yeah. really is. Like, because Bound is so just a straight-ahead thriller, you really have time to be like, "Oh wow, that's really." Um, but uh, in this, there's a lot of other things. I love the uh, art design of this movie. I love um, it's sort of a Terry Gilliam 
uh, Brazil kind of a thing where it's feels like uh you know like all the it feels like a combination of past and future mm-hmm. and present uh like all of the police officers they wear the hats and they <laughs> um and all of the buildings look kind of dingy they don't none of nothing looks new, uh painted or new and uh all of even the phones they use to get in uh, are like pay phones and stuff like that it's I think what really helped this movie age well is because it balances its cyberpunk sort of ideas and edge with like more old fashioned uh sort of I think this I think the Nebuchadnezzar looks a lot like alien like it looks it looks very mechanical it doesn't look super slick and polished like uh, a lot of cyberpunk and and at the core of it it's really especially all the real world stuff and you know pre I guess Neo being unplugged, it's very much a noir. Like it's 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 it evokes Blade Runner and and all the kind of forties leftover holdover architecture and the phones and the, the rotary dials and even the technology is so put together in that kind of aged antique way that it, it's it's a noir, which is a, an element that gets wholeheartedly dropped just just completely shed by the sequels and that's another reason they're so tonally that's different. That's true. That's a that's a good point. I never even thought about that. But it's interesting like to me cuz I feel like whereas something like in Kill Bill you can go, "Oh, well that's an homage to this, that's an homage to that. Oh, he changed this style up here and now it's this type of film." Here it seems more streamlined, you know what I mean? Like it's not I, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Um everything just feels like it congeals really well and because you got your Hong Kong element, you got your dystopian uh you know, fiction that would that would be like Phil K. Dick style, and the anime and the cyberpunk. It's all it, it all just sort of blends really well, and that's what I think people need to give the Wachowskis credit for is that it's 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 an effective mashup that serves the story. Yeah, um, I think all of that is the reason. All of those things that you just said are the reason that I think the whole extended universe aside, the Matrix is you know one of the all time possibly greatest movies ever made kind of film because it's one of those perfect serendipitous meet meetings of material filmmaking time place just all about it for you know you talk about the philosophy of it it's very rooted in this like late 90s corporate culture where Mm. you know capitalism and and corporations and things have risen in this country and we're you know a very powerful money-filled you know country but we're past like the excess of the eighties where everybody's on Coke and everything's neon and flashy. And now we just all have the same cell phone and like cubicles and big, tall, you know, expensive buildings, but they all look the same. And we're like the, we're starting to homogenize our success into this like slavery of corporate culture, which then feeds into all these, you know, hard sci-fi themes and, you know, French philosophy that, that gets built into it. Yeah. Right. Um, I really uh, I, I like how the same way Brazil's um, sort of art design is used to sort of suggest that this so, quote unquote progressive society is really a lot more backwards. Um, I, I like how this uh, sort of uh, hodgepodge no no one age of of the world within the Matrix sort of suggests that like uh, um, uh, it's sort of like they didn't quite understand like the machines when they built it they didn't quite understand human history. Um, so it feels more just like an amalgamation of things as opposed to, uh, you know, and it feels it's like it's part of the story is the feeling of the Matrix, um, which I think is different than, say, like Dark City, which is mov- which gets compared to this movie a lot. Uh, um, because I think Dark City, it does the same thing, and it's mostly just because 
it's really cool looking. Like it, with it, the only reasons any like the great art design and everything exists, just it's, it's super cool looking. But in uh, the Matrix, there is an actual point. Um, also, I like all the I like the idea that um, when you go into the Matrix, what you look like is what's he call it residual self image, <laughs> uh, and it's and it's like you're. Your idea projection of your digital self. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I like the idea that these people who are all hackers um, and they're they're kind of nerdy people. Like their idea of like the ultimate badass is like all these like leather trench coats and sunglasses. Like everyone wearing sunglasses and the um, vague fetish influence on everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we can get uh, into a little bit of the Wachowskis. Uh, obviously, from what we now know about at least uh, Lena Wachowski, they're uh, pretty kinky, but <laughs> uh, and all the leather and stuff is part of that. But I also like the idea that they're um, they're kind of nerdy, like the people in the in the Matrix, and that's why that their their idea of what's so cool is like so garish and weird, as opposed to like say a really good suit, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Like, Morpheus is so clearly like a hyper advanced digital pimp. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Crocodile skin, you know, whole whole works. Um, let's see. I think I think all the I think the fight scenes are great. I think. Uh, yeah, you have to sort of touch on how this movie affected culturally, like how everybody wanted to do the bullet time shot. After well, not that. just yeah, not even bullet time, but, but just, just the kung fu fighting yeah. and the. The, the disregard for gravity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, I will say that's the reason why my favorite uh, at fight scenes, like my favorite action scenes in the whole movie, are uh, Morpheus's fight with Neo in the Construct. Yeah. And uh, Neo's fight with the Agent. Um, mm-hmm. Because they're more kung fu, which I think is exciting. And unlike a lot of the gunplay, which when I was when I first saw it, I thought it was like the coolest fucking shit ever. Like when I watched the lobby scene again, it felt really empty, and like there didn't there it, there was no real at no point do am I like oh shit how's Neo gonna get out of this one like it just felt like those, all those bullets like coming he at him. it looked like he's just sort of running around in yeah. slow motion shooting people who it, it's like when you watch someone play the first level of a video game you're never mm-hmm. afraid they're gonna die I mean maybe back then right. I thought like oh the slow mo thing was effective and you know cool for that i mean movie. it does it does look cool but i think ultimately it's but kind of hollow at this point in time like rewatching him like uh, <laughs> it's like i didn't f- feel that sense of awe and like how spectacular like the lobby scene was other than like oh you know obviously the lobby it, the lobby scene to, to me doesn't yeah it's kind of, it's definitely it doesn't possess the same iconic right well it's actually it's very iconic but it doesn't have the same sense of awe the reason it still gives me goosebumps is a there's just a kind of a sheer volume of you know bullets and debris. There there's a there's a quantity that they, they throw in. And that, I love yeah. that. That's a very hard boiled thing. Is focusing on the debris that all the guns John create. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah, also totally. filmed with an extreme sophistication where they're doing these elaborate moves and uh, you know shifts from one point to another where that they, they're in camera. And it's just filmed with this really sophisticated eye for pacing and editing that that gives me goosebumps as much as, you know, Trinity leaping into the air in slow motion or, you know, the iconic images. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, mm-hmm. it's it's well put together for sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I think where it does lack, and I, I think I can understand what you mean, Patrick, in terms of it being kind of empty, is it's arguably the only action, like, hardcore, you know, move, music ramps up full on action scene in the film um, that doesn't thematically or ha- doesn't push 
story forward thematically or have a character arc. And that's the big difference between Matrix and all the sequels, again, is that every single fight in the Matrix either A, pushes the plot forward in a very demonstrative way, or it you know takes a character from one place to another. When they fight in the dojo, it shifts Neo's understanding yeah. of this. When he fights Smith, you know it's, it's his understanding of his place in the Matrix. Every fight says something about the characters. Which I love I lo- so few action movies do. I love that is it's it's very true, and I think mm-hmm. that's the mark. I think that's something. Uh, for example, I think that's something Walter Hill does well, um, yes. where he makes uh, action part of the characters. Um, right. And I th- I love that dojo scene because. I love how, like, seamlessly the exposition of Morpheus, which, by the way, never feels the kind of wordy clunkiness that a lot of sort of similar, uh, you know, exposition feels in, like, the sequels and stuff. Uh, it's very entertaining to listen to him talk. He's You see he's having a lot of fun, and that obviously that's uh, – Morpheus believes he's found, quote-unquote, the one, so – yeah. Um, the Wachowskis have a, an extreme talent for these kind of montages or action sequences where they, they take a very, you know, a, what would otherwise be just a straightforward action sequence and they stretch it out and then they chop it up and insert things kind of in between it. So, you know, Morpheus has like two monologues amidst a, a very long fight scene. And the and the fight gets – and the other thing I like about it is how the fight escalates and gets more and more complex um, uh, and then gets more and more impressive and engaging. And I like, I really like when uh, fight scenes have that kind of arc where um, you it starts one place, which is really impressive, and then it just keeps escalating and keeps going up. Yeah. And there's like three different musical, like the score shifts and has three different approaches to each segment of the fight scene, right. the pace, the the pacing, and the characters that are observing. You know how interested or involved they are changes. Mm-hmm. Now I did. Now I do want to maybe now talk about sort of the things I think are very weak about the matrix. Um, the, the number one, my number one problem with it would be, um, Neo and Trinity's romance. Which I is, completely agree. Yeah. Which is <laughs> so rote and only yeah. exist for, and it, and if it was, and there's it, not a lot of moments between the two of them where you get the sense that they're, you know, connecting at all. No, they have, they don't have a lot of chemistry. Um, All she is really doing is saying, like, oh, the Oracle told me that I was going to fall in love with the one, and guess what? I, you know, it's like, I, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're sort of, I don't know if she's, they're sort of playing into, you know, free will versus determinism again and sort of like saying, well, I was told this one thing, so I better believe it, as opposed to letting it play out organically. Um, but I'm just so not like as invested in that component at all. At, in this movie. And then when that is ultimately what brings him back to life, it's, it's, it kind of yeah. kills the moment. Um, I, 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 the, I have a, you know, it's hard for me to, to pull this perspective out because, you know, this franchise has been something I've been, I was obsessed with when I was younger. So to me, like the, that on screen couple, there's just years and years and years and years of, of familiarity with it, but trying to, to narrow it down to what is purely present in the text, of the matrix you know, I, I I kind of agree. Uh, the, the one thing I'll I'll say that the uh, the film is able to do is that it consistently presents that mystery in terms of like Trinity is intrigued and interested and fascinated and feels some connection to Neo. But they from the, I mean that's the very first thing you hear right. is her mm-hmm. and Cyber talking and she it's alluded to and that is so consistently present that while the film never has time to kind of slow down and give them like a romantic 
moment where they connect on some level, there's like this mysterious connection that is at least consistent throughout the entire film. There is this I, – I, I was – at first my theory was that their romance was a plot device and that the Wachowskis were too kinky to, to, to really be invested in such a rote romance. But now that I like think about their characters and like she's very harsh to him, there's there's mm-hmm. no warm moments. Uh, really, there's she uh, she's devoted to him. Like there's a lot of um, not you know not explicitly S and M, but a lot of and and again not even just in this film, but a lot of Wachowski movies. There's a lot of power going on, power struggles going on in between in relationships. Um, obviously, especially the, in Bound. Well, I think even more so in V for Vendetta, mm. um, which which I don't remember the comic well enough, but I don't remember the uh, the relationship between V and Evie being so romantic as it is. Uh, yeah, in, it's uh, a little more weird and complex, I think. But right. yeah, I don't remember well enough to say either. Yeah, but uh, and I think like that's that it's sort of like this idea of master and, you know, and yeah, I could totally see teacher that. and student. And uh, there's these power dynamics going on. Um, yeah. I'm not saying that it has to be like lovey dovey moments between the two of them. And right. You know, but at the same time, it's, it, it's, it and again, if it was, if it was just like a smaller part, but when the main big climax at the end is that he comes back to life, Due to the sheer power of her love, that's the power of love. That's that's exactly what Huey Lewis was warning about this whole time. <laughs> and <laughs> well, the big problem is that the something inherent to the aesthetic of the whole Matrix is there is a, you know a stoicism. To everything, yeah. You know, mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the agents, the the characters on the ship, everything in the Matrix is very hyper stylized and cool, but very like drawn back, reserved. But I really do feel like, especially, it comes from Trinity mostly, and I think Carrie Ann Moss did a really good job of, she is so invested in Neo and has such, like, a motherly attitude towards him always. Like, she's always right there. She's, you know, shooting Cypher nasty looks whenever he says anything. She's always next to him. She's always (laughs) the one, you know, pulling the connection out of his head. And, you know, Neo is so stoic that you kind of get the idea that he was so lonely you know, as you know, it's just a guy that this first connection is a you know a big deal for him, and it's all it's all very subtle, and it's I guess it's how much of how much of the film you're willing to how much benefit of the doubt you're willing to give right. the subtlety of it. Right. I got to give a lot of credit to Keanu Reeves because that's lot, actually what I want to bring up next. Yeah, because a lot of people <clears throat> you know harp on him as you know not being the greatest actor in the world and being very one note. This seemed to just. This this role was sort of made for him, and it feels like it complements his strengths very well. Where he he's he's good at sort of downplaying things as opposed to playing, you know, a period piece or Shakespeare, like th- this kind of role. And I, I never saw Johnny Mnemonic, so I can't really compare why, you know, maybe that that movie was just maybe a failure in in every way. Whereas The Matrix, everything was a strength, and sort of like added to Keanu Reeves's acting ability. I mean, because like. But I feel like, you know, he evolves and you believe, you know, especially that very final fight sequence with Agent Smith and how his facial reactions to, like, just beating him up, like, oh, I don't care, I'm just beating you up, just standing here, it's cool. Like, just that sort of zen-like vibe that Keanu Reeves sort of, that's why I also love him in Thumbsucker, too, because he plays a very zen-like character. I was actually going to complain about him, but I think you're right. I, I don't know what it is. I can't really justify that I don't really like Keanu Reeves in this movie because 
his character is a cipher. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Joe Pantliano's character is cipher, but his character <laughs> is a cipher, and it's he, it's his entire character's history has been wiped clean. It's a blank slate. Everything mm-hmm. he thought happened did not happen. Um, He's also a nerd everyman. Yeah, um, it's. Uh, so the fact that he's a cipher and that he's kind of lost and all these people are telling him what he is and he doesn't really have any reply to it. He doesn't really know how to handle it. Uh, it's a, it's very good casting. Also, he also is totally, uh, sort of a nerd, like kind of a dork. Um, <laughs> and while that makes, I think one of the most, I, I, and again, this might be intentional, but one of the most, uh, s- sort of cringeworthy moments in the film, I think is when he goes, how about I give you the finger? And it's like, like that's the ultimate, like, <laughs> badass sort of re- reaction he could have, is, yeah, I just flicked you off. Like, that's... <laughs> like, I, He's also pretty impotent in that scene, and, uh, you yeah. know, I could kind of give at least maybe the Wachowskis, if not Keanu, credit for kind of showing that he he is definitely the dork. Yeah, but I... That situation. I, I, yeah, maybe it's just the way uh, Keanu plays it. I think he's trying to be cool or whatever, but, um... Uh, and then he's also kind of a dork, and you see that in the uh, in the oft-quoted "Whoa!" <laughs> when Morpheus jumps yeah. one building to the other, and he's just like, "All right, for your mind, come on!" And and then he has that sort of Looney Tunes fall, like it's yeah. I think I think he works in the. But again, I think his casting is probably the number one uh, piece of evidence you can give towards uh, Ren's theory that no good Matrix sequel could be made because him he, like. Him as a uh, as a Christ figure does not work at all. Like, yeah. Him as a cipher who's lost and not sure what he's finding, it, like not sure what he's supposed to do, and then eventually finding it. It's one thing, but like that. But the person, the character, uh, the person that character eventually turns into. Luckily, he only has one scene in the first Matrix where he's just <laughs> on the phone, and that's right. And that- my buddy has a has a theory about Keanu Reeves that I think applies here and to all of his movies that. Keanu, at any given time, can be a great facial actor, he can be a great vocal actor, and he can be a great physical performance actor. But at any given moment, you have to choose two. (laughs) That's Uh, a really good idea. That's a really good point. (laughs) Um, I don't know if if it holds up to scrutiny, but I've always enjoyed that theory. That that makes sense to me. Yeah, I agree. Um, Got to talk about Hugo Weaving, because this is my first Oh, that's right. He's one of the greatest villains of all time. He's yeah, great. All times, yeah. no doubt. Yeah. Um. And again, what you don't that scene see with him and Lawrence Fishburne. Like, yeah. The, and uh, what you so don't perfect. see, like when the whole time the car- the agents are blank, no personality. Um. Is to the point where it's just like when you are unable to speak, like <laughs> they just like draw out words because they don't mean anything to them, and it's and then that. And then you just see this idea that oh shit maybe even the programs inside the matrix aren't happy with it and it's just it's the it's the iceberg effect it's everything yeah. you don't see behind that character which is so compelling. Um, the agents are, are an interesting another interesting line to draw between the original and the sequels and that the original they're faceless they're white dudes very corporate but they each have like this weird kind of ugliness to them or weird personality quirk or vocal thing. Whereas in the you know the sequels, faceless agents become all the same size, beefy dude with chiseled jaw and blank voice. Like yeah. they managed a way, they managed a way of doing something where they're anonymous and yet they have personality and they're interesting. Yeah, and they so have yeah. a drawn mm-hmm. drawn line. 
Yeah, and the sequels. Uh, now, here's the biggest question that is a little that is actually brought up, and again, it's an iceberg thing. You only it's brought up, but because the movie is so propulsive, you don't spend a lot of time with it. But the idea that the Matrix is kind of clearly better than the real world. <laughs> well, Cipher brings that up. Yeah, yeah, no, that's sure. what I'm talking about in the yeah. original. Um, but for some reason, they never talk about that in the sequels. Like it's just taken for it's just. Yeah, I wouldn't want to live in Zion. No, <laughs> I would not want to be on a ship. I wouldn't want to, like, I would take blue pill every time. <laughs> um, I, I think that's funny. I think that's, I just think that's funny because, like, why would anyone want to be outside That's of endemic of the problem with, with everything about the core existence of the sequels. That the, the Matrix is this perfect little package that takes, you know, all these tips of all these icebergs. But if you start expanding them out every very few of them not even it's not that they don't hold up to scrutiny at this they just get so out of control that there's no way a movie could could ever you know tackle them. yeah in the same way that like when he says that he's going to show these people what you don't want them to see and he's going to fly and like if you actually start trying to extrapolate that out and how a shift in the paradigm of the matrix or if you wanted to free six billion people like just the sheer logistics of that like there's nowhere to go with that specifically when you're tying it to a movie like your imagination and you know if somebody wants to write a novel or a comic book you know there's all kinds of cool places you can go with it but in terms of trying to create or keep this story going it's just unsustainable exactly and that's actually why i think the animatrix works so much better than the sequels because you're just seeing little glimpses of stories i mean they're not all like as as far as as short films they don't all like work like as right. great, you know, great piece of art, but they they're giving you little pieces, uh, just little sort of thought experiments within the Matrix, and they're not bound to. Well, we got to come up with the three arcs. We got to come out with a three act story, mm-hmm. and it's got to and it's you know it's a sequel to a major motion picture. So we got to have we get the action, which is what everyone focused on from the first film. So we got to make sure that's more spectacular. And I'm not opposed to the idea of extending the mythology because I think it's and apparently that's what they did with the comics, right? Right, yeah, the mm. comics are all, they're exactly like the Animatrix. I mean, Neil Gaiman wrote a piece, the, the huh. touches of the second renaissance started in a small Matrix comic. Yeah, there's all little thought exercises for, like, well, huh, I wonder what it's like if you took the blue pill. What's a little ten-page comic where we can do, you know, follow a woman who took the blue pill and who is now depressed and miserable because she never knows what, you know, what could have mm. been, you know, things like that. That's what's interesting is like the end of the first movie, I feel like, sets up the possibility of, you know, going back into the Matrix and sort of focusing on that world as Neo is trying to free other people and sort of recruit other people that way. Because I love the way the movie ends and, you know, for some reason where we go and focusing on Zion, especially in the third one, I was kind of just not... I was kind of detached more than ever from the experience because I was so into the first movie. Oh, I will. I will say though, mm-hmm. second one's action. Oh God! Yeah, incredible. No, for sure. Definitely. The the highway Absolutely. chase scene spectacular. Like you want to? Their filmmaking craft did not diminish. No, whatsoever. definitely not. Um, and it's it's they. Uh, I think. I mean, I, I even think... like the scene with the architect. It's kind of a. It worked better the second time. I didn't mm-hmm. really follow it the first time. Um, I think because I thought I did. I think the problem is I understood it, but I thought I wasn't getting it all. Yeah, it's it's, it's a lot to throw out at you at once. And of course, unlike the Morpheus uh, sort of explanation of the Matrix, 
the architect's speech is all just ex- like really clunky exposition. It's just yeah. words. It's just a steady stream of adjectives and nouns and you know conjunctions and. <laughs> it's like watching Waking Life all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. Which is fine for me. I mean, I don't find that I never find that stuff boring because I find philosophy and psychology interesting. So when it's thrown at me, even all like you know for twenty minutes straight, I'm like, that's cool. I'm into that. Really <laughs> you know, but, but it's like, and I was also thinking the exposition in this movie is very similar to Inception, where it's that scene where um, they're walking through the Matrix and that crowd of people, and he's sort of look at all the people here. That's exactly like the scene with uh, Ellen Page and Leonardo DiCaprio going through. Hey, look at all yeah, my uh, yeah, 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 look yeah. at all my projections everywhere. Um, yeah, <laughs> Inception I'm, is definitely the second coming of the Matrix. I'm it's pretty, I'm pretty totally. sh- and Inception is the same way where sort of the ideas uh, it, it brings up and sort of the different concepts. And you don't need a sequel. Yeah, you don't at all. The story ends where it ends, and that's that. And that's how the Matrix could have um, been. And I think, I think also, just real quick, I want to talk about. I think the sound design of the Matrix is amazing. Um, mm-hmm. I oh think, yeah, I think they just beautiful. they just did everything right with the time slowing down. It sounds right. It's all, um, yeah. It's it's uh, it's sort of. I think I think all, and I think the Matrix is a perfect example of, at least in my opinion, what CGI is good at. Which is sort of manipulating footage mm-hmm. and sort of uh, expanding the palette of the camera and stuff, as opposed to the s- sequels, which sort of are doing what I think CGI is bad at, which is creating objects wholesale, um, creating you know big worlds so the camera can sweep through them in an elaborate shot that could never exist anywhere else, and it just looks like a like a like a like an, a CGI mo- like a CGI movie. It doesn't look like an actual. Right. film and uh, right and i think even the, even the the cgi like you know the nebuchadnezzar and the sentinels and stuff what makes that work is there's very very few shots where a cgi object and a real person are in the same shot and they're interacting yeah it's either the sentinels fucking with the ship there's like the one shot where the the uh, claw thing or whatever just grabs neo by the throat but mm-hmm. for the most right. part i can accept it if when it's separated in that way um, like I think the chase, the sort of the ship chase scene. Uh, I can't remember. I think it's in Revolutions. Um, it is where she, where the is it? I, I can't, Niobe. Yeah, Niobe is is uh, flying the ship and is being chased by the thousands of Sentinels. I think that mostly works because you're not seeing, you're seeing, you're not seeing a CGI creation composited next to a real person. Right. right. Whereas stuff like the uh, all of the Sentinels swarming into the city, it, it just kind of looks really kind of redundant and fake and yeah i didn't have time to right. watch Even though there the are sequels. some truly beautiful like wide shots and vistas and like big you know well, wide yeah. lens war sequence you know views that are that are hidden among those like you, but, yeah, well, a lot of clunky green screening and stuff too yeah well like you said it's it's uh they didn't lose their eye Right. It's, it's just. Compositing I mean, I think, is a, compositing is still a big challenge, even if the CGI is is even when the CGI is amazing. Yeah, compositing is still a thing that's always tricky. And I and I think I think I think Matrix Reloaded, especially, is sort of it shows the it shows sort of the best and worst that the Hollywood machine can do to a property. Mm-hmm. Whereas they have the money to throw down. We're going to have this whole highway chase and we'll build the fucking highway like this fucking three mile loop on an airbase somewhere right. and. We'll spend millions and millions and millions of dollars to have this super spectacular chase. And on the other hand, 
well, we got to have it within a certain amount of time. So you got to hurry up on the screenplay because we're already supposed to be working on the, you know, the special effects. Right. Uh, I think it's, and, and so then what ends up is it, it feels like very, it doesn't, it feels very like forced and half baked in, in many ways um, on the, on a screenplay aspect. Yeah, Cause normally they take their time between movies too. I've right. Noticed. Yeah. So that helps. I think the, the sequels, they kind of get a lot of shit where they should and they shouldn't, but uh, I think they do. I actually watched them just within the last like 12 hours and, uh, Looking at the, the just the sheer volume of what they accomplished, it's very much like a sci-fi Lord of the Rings where they just produce such a huge volume of material. And there's so much, you know, miniature work and practical effects and like just the for every crappy CGI shot, you know, there's 12 amazing other shots or, you know, the, every time they do, you know, they built this mile long highway, they've got all these cars, but yet every single one of those shots has you know, the background behind the highway is Compton or something like that, where they did a really effective job of building all these environments and scaling, scaling things up. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's an impressive achievement. And it he, definitely is. And I, I, and I think in an, even in a, on an imagination level, despite the fact that it, you know, I think it's mostly disappointing. I just didn't feel as engaged with the sequel well, no, no, storytelling-wise and where the character went and... I think there were moments that took me out. Like there were moments where he'd be bending the matrix, and he looked more like a video game version well, of Neo. The, especially right. during the Burly Man uh, sort oh, of yeah, fight. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I'm, it's the Matrix is always going to be a, a favorite movie in the science fiction genre for sure. Um, I mean, I guess there are a couple of things that kind of went, huh? Okay, so why, I don't. Think, why, why did um? I forgot the character's oh, name. Yeah, why, I, why, why, why all of a sudden the, this one character says, oh, Neo must be the one because he you know, bent the Matrix, or not bent the Matrix, but that one scene where he crashes the helicopter. That's what I wanted to, I for, completely forgot about it. That's what I want to talk about because I had a, I had a discussion <laughs> about this. Moments like that. I had, I'm like, really? That, that makes him I the had, one? I had a discussion about this on Facebook, and I think despite the fact that they're great storytellers, that one aspect of the film, no one could agree on what, they that scene actually meant so ren you've seen the film probably more than anybody uh what the scene in which he saves trinity from the helicopter um right how, how does that prove he's the one i think that is the first time that he commits a, a sort of physical feat that is truly beyond the skill of anyone else um in terms of you know, it, you, it's kind of shady, but A, it's the intuition that he knows that Trinity is going to, you know, grab the end of that rope and shoot it and be at the end of it. Like, he just kind of knows it. And then if you think about the physics of it, it's not something that I think any other human, like Morpheus, I don't think he could have accomplished that. I don't think he could have, you know, extended the idea of the strength of his muscles to, you know, do that stunt. And it's just, you know, it's a moment of faith. I think, you know, again, the knowing what Trinity will do, just having that moment of faith is, is a big deal. Okay, like kind of- so it's it's a lot more just the – because I feel like dodging bullets is a more impressive physical <laughs> feat than, right. yeah. than well, holding Well, the way that up- moment is presented where at the on the rooftop he, he kind of pulls the same stunt that an agent does, it's, it's shown as like a foreshadowing like, whoa, that was – that kind of blipped out for a second, almost like a like – a, it's a, a the one burp where he right. just kind of parts yeah. out this moment of like oh shit I didn't know I could do that 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 was weird it was like a glitch almost and I, then that was a moment where he 
he took action. Like, I am going to commit this physical feat yeah. to save someone. Yeah, she says I, you, you can move like them. Right. I just, I feel like that feels more of a revelation than, because, I mean, people are already a lot stronger and everything in the Matrix. He doesn't hold up the helicopter with the rope. He just holds her up. Like, right. I don't, and then I think my main problem with it is he has like four epiphanies. He has the bullet dodging one. He has, when he holds her up, uh, he has the part where he decides to just face the agent instead of running. Um, and then yeah, he has... I really, I really don't think that moment on the roof is, is treated like that. I mean, it, it is because it's such a big shot, and that's probably that's probably the most iconic shot from the movie. Well, right, yeah. backwards, but it's really not treated as like a he realizes it's just like an oh shit instinct. Like he's obviously got these abilities in him, and they come out in this moment of stress. But it's not something that he does because he knows he can do it. I, I still, it's not a moment of bravery. I still feel like she's the one who she, she goes, you move like they do. Like, I think it is treated as if, uh, you know, you said foreshadowing. And I think it's, I just, um, you know, and uh, I just feel like there's too many moments. And but I, it's another I, moment of another character telling him that he's the one or that he can do special shit. But then he immediately write, writes it off. Like he dismisses it. Like, well, I didn't do it fast enough. Like he just, he, he still hasn't accepted anything. Whereas later in the moment he is truly accepting his his place or, or kind of you know being aggressive about the idea that he might be able to do things other can't I others just, can't. I, I mean I feel like the intuition um, is is probably the best explanation. But I just I feel like I feel like if you watched any action movie and someone fell and then someone and they were hanging onto a, a fire hose and the other person grabbed onto it and held them over the building like. It would be well. That doesn't happen in real life, but it would be like just a typical action movie moment. It doesn't feel like any kind of epiphany. Um, yeah, I, I, that, I mean that's totally true. I, and I, I totally and I think and I, and then like when I talked about it on Facebook, there are like eight different theories. Um, I thought I thought I always thought it was because the helicopter crashed into the glass and the glass did that glitch, yeah, and somehow that proved he was the Matrix, or not the Matrix. It proved he was the, the one. <laughs> But like, no, I think that's just a stylistic little I think, moment. I think, I think Tank is that the character um, yeah, who says um, that. I, he doesn't say it to Neo either. He's, he yeah, said, just, sort of just says, says it to it himself to the, as yeah. he's viewing it. And I just found that to be kind of like, oh, trying to reinforce that he's the one, huh? Thanks. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, I, I think if he did that stunt and he saved her, um, and they were like, oh fuck, you did that, but they didn't say anything about him being the one. And then later, when he chose to face the agent, and then they go, "Ah, oh, he is begin- realizing he is the one." I think that would have maybe worked better. But again, not a not a huge point. He just just a question. Um, I think we're we're ready to move on. <laughs> just like I, one of those songs that like I always hear at the grocery store popped into my head for no apparent reason. That's how my mind works. I apologize. And, and we're all better for it. Yeah, yeah I know. I just thought like Here you are the one. You are the one. Oh my god. <laughs> Okay, sorry. Let's move on. Woo! Indeed. To to, uh, a very divisive film. Your son seems to be interested in only one thing. All he talks about. All he seems capable of thinking about is automobile racing. Race 
family. It isn't just a sport. It's way more important than that. It's like a religion. Are you ready to become a real race car driver? Then sign that contract. He's just trying to scare you, son. What you do behind the wheel of a race car has nothing to do with business. You walk away from me. You walk away from this deal. No matter how well you drive, you won't win. You won't place. I guarantee you right now, you won't even finish the race. You think you can drive a car and change the world? It doesn't work like that. Maybe not. But it's the only thing I know how to do, and I gotta do something. Now, most people know, obviously, that... uh, after the the Matrix trilogy came out, I think the only was the only other thing they did was write V for Vendetta. They just wrote, yeah, they wrote and produced it, right? And kind of uh, the, their fingerprints are definitely all over. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. Very, uh... Spielberg poltergeist sort of uh, situation. Yeah, 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 totally. And I did, I, I liked V for Vendetta. I don't think I loved it. I like it. it a lot. Yeah, you know, I, I I enjoyed it for what it was. It's not something I'm eager to rewatch over and over again. But for what it was, I, I had a good time with it. Now, and so- I also don't want to take away from McTeague. I think you know he was definitely the the director of that film, but sure. he, he, you know, his, his influences showed. Now, Speed Racer comes out. I've never even seen an episode of the 1960s Japanese anime cartoon. Or have I. And I did not even see this in the theater. And I, for, because everybody I knew said, like, don't even fucking bother, it'll give you a headache. I, I had not watched this movie until last night. And... I just recently got a Blu-ray player, <laughs> and I decided for the first time I'm going to watch a movie with like headphones on because I don't have like the greatest, most fanciest surround sound speaker system or anything. And anytime I've watched movies or you know listen to stuff just through my computer, I always have a good like surround sound experience, you know, because it's in stereo, good in my headphones, whatever. So I I watched Speed Racer on Blu-ray, and I was. Just just like seeing Bound, just like seeing The Matrix, I was floored. I enjoyed the fuck out of this movie. I loved everything about it. Um, visually, I was... I mean, obviously, what can you say? Nothing like this ever has ever been you know, put to film before. And, <laughs> like, it, it's a live-action cartoon. It's ridiculous. It's goofy. I mean, there are moments involving the monkey where I'm kind of rolling my eyes. But that's, you know, that's what a cartoon is. And if you if if people watch this cannot like like if their jaw isn't on the floor when they're when he's going through like the ice caves and stuff, you guys gotta watch this on Blu-ray. Seriously. I <laughs> I'm just I'm like I can't express how like wonderful of experience it was watching this last night and having why is what are you doing in my room? It's just a cat. <laughs> I'm <It's> sorry. Just- <laughs> <laughs> Um, she's Susan never- Sarandon, everybody, <laughs> straight from the film. No, it's Christina Ricci in that okay. awesome haircut. Okay. Mm, yes. I'm a great fan of Christina Ricci in this film. Um, I know. I uh, I had a similar experience. I got the Blu-ray. I, I haven't seen a lot of films on Blu-ray, but uh, it's it's a fantastic film and it's beautiful. And um, but I was expecting all that. That's all I heard about it because uh-huh. unlike. Sort of, I guess the film critic circles that uh, Jim is Jim travels in. Uh, I heard about this movie on Chud, where it was pretty acclaimed. People just fell in love with that movie. Well, they also hate Scott Pilgrim, so I don't know. Maybe oh, they, your, your they just don't like friends? this. They don't like this ADHD style of filmmaking. They don't. They don't. You know? They don't. They, they just they they get mad at these youngsters these days. <laughs> so yeah, it's nice. So they're fucking old and boring. <laughs> <laughs> no, but okay. So I was expecting that. I was expecting like this huge, incredible, 
uh, one-of-a-kind psychedelic experience, I got it. What I was yeah. not expecting was to be invested in the characters and the story. And I like the biggest compliment I can give this movie is it made me care about the sanctity of a sport that doesn't fucking exist. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know, right? I, I like that's so weird. For, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> I, it, it, I, it's, I think it's one of the very few family kids movies in the last 10 years to prove that you can make a sophisticated, beautiful, amazing kids movie in a way different from Pixar. And that they do not have the only uh, methodology for creating sophisticated, appreciate you know film, uh, appreciative on a like a literary film level, you know mo- family movies like that's one I think one of its biggest accomplishments. I could see Brad Bird kind of like making a film like this. I don't. I think Brad Bird would not make a film this crazy. Well, no, um, definitely but- not. But just. Just that sort of ambitious well, take on... I think on... it's... Because at first I'm like, all right, it's very setting up very broadly. Oh, he's living in the shadow of his brother. And the brother... And I was like, okay, we're painting very broad strokes. It's a kid's movie. I can deal with this. There's a fucking monkey. Yeah. I, there's <laughs> a, I, can, I can deal with the... I can deal with the, uh, you know, flashbacks. Very exposition-y. Um, I mean, obviously sure. stylish. Like like the Wachowski... Only the Wachowski can do. Um, but it's, I can deal with this. It's this... This seem this very, but like the warmth of the family and like oh yeah, like they and like just the interaction between John Goodman and the little little fucker. What's the guy's name? Spritel. Spritel. <laughs> like just like that was funny, and I enjoyed that, and I I enjoyed Christina Ricci's character, and I enjoyed how. Uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of really like cheesy, wholesome like movies, <laughs> and I think this there. I think like Speed. And Christina Ricci's like relationship was very much that. It's where it's just cute. like, all right, baby, let's get to smooching. <laughs> like, like <laughs> hubba, it was, hubba. yeah, it, it was like it was, your suit. It was, it's very broad, and but, it's and it's, but it's like very sweet. Um, and but it's also very specific in the way that kind of the way Christina Ricci is integrated into the family. Yes, and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. things like that. Like it's not just cartoony. Everything's arch. Like there's a very specific tonality to it. That's really appreciable and you don't see often. Yeah, no, it's true because yeah. it's not I, – I thought everyone – I thought everything would be weightless um, and it's and it very much the opposite is true. It's um, – you, you really do care about the characters and you really do care about the world and the story is investing in kind of exciting and – I can see people being annoyed by certain moments involving the younger brother and the monkey like riding it's on a those – like, But that's like what it's I mean. It's a kid's that's, movie. Like, that's like, how I was thinking of it and like – I was even laughing at like especially when they're imagining themselves in the cartoon or whatever. Oh, that, that was, was so funny! Hilarious. I thought that was. I think they're mostly funny. I think. Yeah. The, I think the little kid who right. played Spritel was very funny. Um, I mean, so expressive it, and yeah. and just fully matches the tone of everything else that happened. Absolutely. Um, I really, but now here's the other. That so that was the one concern I had that I wouldn't give a shit about any of the characters in the plot, and I really did care. Like I. I, like I'm super embarrassed to say it. I literally like teared up a bit at the final race. <laughs> I don't think there's any th- embarrassment in that. Like it's it was it's like such a great triumphant moment. But now the actual races themselves. I don't know what's thing. going on most of no, the time. No, no, no. I was I was really worried. I couldn't that, follow it. Oh, I could I could very much follow it. Yeah, I was I, 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 and I, was, I was worried because I, I knew it would be all I knew it would be all CGI. I knew mm-hmm. that the physics that existed in that world were not you know, real world physics. And I was afraid it would just, again, feel weightless. Um, 
but it's very exciting. It's I, I don't know anything about racing, but I'm assuming that there's a lot of drifting going on in that movie. Yes. It's, it's very drift yeah. influence, which is a it's, it's very NASCAR Formula One inspired in that there are there's kind of team dynamics where certain team members are drifting behind the others and then they use each other to slingshot around and, and those though that that is based on, you know, real physics. The the leaping through the air and shit and spinning around at the drop of a hat is obviously not. But right. those things are based in, in real physics. But I and I, I thought it even felt a little bit like the way you play with Hot Wheels as a kid. Where you don't exactly. necessarily, yes. um, and I think that tracks the design of the tracks. Yeah, not even just design, but the way the cars move, where they don't always move on their wheels. Like it, it felt mm-hmm. very much like like that's how you would play with a car. You're just you're just swinging it back and forth, and it's like traction doesn't exist. It's all momentum and inertia. Right, exactly, and I. It was very exciting. I thought the race in the desert where uh, Ugh, Speed was doing all of that, that so cool jumping stuff. <laughs> like I, and that, like I thought that was all. Very inventive, um, which is, again, a key part of what makes the Wachowskis action scenes so much better is uh, than so many is because they're just very inventive. And I, it was exciting. And um, and they're clear. Like, yes, every no. bit of this race, the camera is zooming around. The camera does not exist. It's not doing anything a real camera could do. But it's you. It's still implying real ideas of momentum and, mm-hmm. and visual unity around so that if you're really following every shot, like it tells you everything you need to know about where cars are, what they're doing, the internal logic is consistent, and it's just exhilarating. It really is. <laughs> if I was seven years old, this would be my favorite movie. Oh, absolutely. You know, and that's why sure. you got to commend them for being able to tap into that sensibility, but also bring their A game, you know, cinematically. As, as exactly. filmmakers, like I, my number one thought was, oh, this is this is going to be fun because this is going to be the filmmaker's excuse to go nuts with style, and it is, but it's not at the expense of anything. Um, yeah, there are moments where I'm like, you know what, it's okay to have style over substance, but then again, I felt like this had substance to it, like especially like you said with the family scenes together. I thought they added to the movie; they didn't seem out of place. It's you like candy coated steak, and yet not as disgusting <laughs> as it sounds. Maybe that's and I, I like the Willy Wonka kind of moments of uh, where they're going through the factory. Of, oh, that was uh, that was that's a really fun scene, and yeah. um, I love that that character is just such a bastard, and he's the, he was cast in V for Vendetta as a similar, just total <laughs> fucking bastard, playing like Tim Curry, yeah. Roger Allen, I think his name is. Okay, yeah. yeah. Evoking Jim, Tim Curry. But... Um, now, uh, there's, I want to get to the email that June sent us. June is one of our listeners, and he's certainly one of my favorite people. Um, and it's a very long email, but it basically, uh, it's one plot point. Um, and it's not, this isn't a spoiler, this is his interpretation of a plot point. Um, and uh, there's a part where Ben, uh, the character Ben Burns, is a very famous old racer who's played by Richard Roundtree, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, he, his, his sort of most famous race is after Speed Racer's brother left, it's the, it's sort of the thing that brought Speed and his dad together and got them enthusiastic about racing again, which right. again is a wonderful little scene, uh, cause it's, you know, it, it's like, it's got, it's, you really feel for the characters cause they're enthusiasts and you really don't get me started. The scene of the father and the little boy watching NASCAR or the race together. Yeah. And bonding over, ugh. Yeah, just, and they're like, just, I meant, I meant that, uh, isn't in a good way. By no, where, yeah, where it's like you're just emotionally <laughs> devastated, but being yeah. able to take your mind off on this one thing, and, um, 
And, and even like early on, Susan Sarandon tells Speed's character, you know, oh, I feel like what you're doing out there, you're more of an artist. You're not even, you know, I felt, all right, that's people who play sports love to say that. And then, <laughs> but it's like, no, he, it, it's, it's not a comment about art. It's a comment about like just Speed Racer's, Speed's purity. Um, and again, it's just, I don't know, it's real good. But anyway. He's driving for driving's sake. Like he's, you know, it's like you said, it's his purity. Exactly. Um, anyway, so um, June says that there's a part where um, it's revealed to him by the sort of asshole uh, CEO character um, that all races are fixed. And this sort of becomes the number one yeah. sort of uh, moral uh, dilemma in speed in the film. Um and he says, even that one race that made you love your, you know, made you love it again, that was decided. Fixed. It was so exciting, yeah. but it was actually decided. Right. Um, and then shortly after that, there's a scene where Speed sees Ben Burns in a locker room and asks him, hey, did you know how that race is going to end? And then Ben Burns just sort of goes, uh, he, he just sort of gives a non-answer that sort of implies that he did. Um, right. Now, June's point is that the Wachowskis consistently, um, uh, they, uh, they, uh, one of their consistent sort of themes is epiphany through experience. Um, oh, I like that. Where it's, no one can tell Neo that he's the one. He has to find it out for himself. You know, Evie can't understand V until he goes through what, she, until she goes through what he went through in those camps, you know? Mm-hmm. Um you know things like that, and uh, so when he, his theory is that when Speed asked Ben if he knew he was going to win, and Ben gives him a cryptic response uh, that Burns is only giving uh, uh, Burns is sort of playing the role of the Oracle, basically. Uh, I right. hadn't thought of that before. Um, and that even there's a scene where Racer X goes, uh, where Speed asks Racer X, "If you know so much, why don't you tell me why I should keep driving?" And the Racer X goes, "Sorry, that's for you to figure out." So, uh, June, this is a very small plot point, but I thought it was sort of interesting about the larger themes. Uh, yeah, that's, about a, that's a really insightful point. It, it yeah. talks about... So, that's June's okay. theory is that Ben Burns didn't um, actually uh, sell that race... Uh, didn't sell actually out. throw that race. Right. Um, because... But he just was just telling Speed what he needed to know. That's... That is a weird thing to say, though. I feel... I, I do feel like the that scene, as ambiguous as it is, was indicating that he did know... Or is at least you know suggesting to speed to be careful that the things he's found out are kind of you know there is an underlying level to it. Yeah, and then hmm. uh, and then at the end of the very last race, the characters uh, you know the characters cheering for speed and is going and it, and he goes shame on them when he discovers that they were using <laughs> a spear hook and it's um. I don't know. I think the point. I think. I think June's point about whether or not he knows is kind of irrelevant. But I think the larger point about epiphany through experience is more interesting. For um, sure, that's nice. Yeah, definitely. I think even in uh, even in Bound, there's a lot of doubt in between. Uh, there's a lot of doubt that uh, Gina Gershon's character has towards Jennifer Tilly's character because she doesn't really isn't Trust. even like she doesn't even really sh- sure if Jennifer Tilly's a real lesbian like. Um, yeah. Like there's a lot of distrust about how Jennifer Tilly's seeing all these men and and what they go through together. Like the, the that's like their big their big argument in that movie. Uh, you know, so you know what the difference between me and you is, and 
you know, and then they sort of talk about all their differences and how they're not similar. And then at the end of the movie, Jeannie Gershon repeats that line. He goes, you know, the difference between me and you is nothing. And it's sort of they have to, through that experience, form, you know, actually <laughs> learn to love each other. So the whole movie is actually about them going through the trials of a relationship, I guess. Uh, Even in the sequels, it, it kind of spirals out of control into like the self-reflexive nothing makes sense anymore but at the core of it that still was the thing that they were trying to get across that you know people do what they do and Neo is doing what he's doing because he chooses to and because you know it's it's how he sees the world and how he's going to mm-hmm. experience and that ultimately it's his choices that are at the core of everything that's what they were trying yeah. to say you know how successful it was but that's still you can tell that was in their heart absolutely but i mean can also just be looked at as i guess it's more simplistic but you know the the, the commerce versus artistry and talent well i mean no, there's that there's that as well yeah. there's definitely uh that as well about the about the purity of it and about yeah the purity the control of the, of the media by the and not sponsors only, and, and i mean you can of, even you can do it about i was what, thinking of red belt for a second and the what purity I, of the sport and like trying to <laughs> uphold your integrity yeah no it's it's a lot like that and it's you can even sort of view it as a comment on you know hollywood versus being an art like uh i one of the things i really enjoy about uh about speed racer is when speed um it, when he enters a race that he's sort of quote unquote not supposed to be in and things start going the way they haven't been planned mm-hmm. the audience goes nuts they love it they love being surprised by this um, they, it's better than the preconceived, uh, you know, fixed endings uh, that uh, the, the big corporations want and think that the people want. Yeah. And you can say that the Wachowskis view themselves as they want to go into Hollywood and they want to shake things up. They want to make a crazy philosophical – like they want to spend – I don't know how much the two Matrix sequels cost combined, but they want to spend like $300, $400, $500 million of Hollywood's money and make this – Weird philosophical mind bender. I think it was about three fifty. Okay, yeah, it's like, kind of funny well. you say that because one of their favorite movies and the reason their company is called The Burly Man and that was the the working ti- or the production title of the sequels is The Burly Man is because it was a reference to Barton Fink and the the wrestling picture he's you know uh, writing in that movie, which the, you know that movie is about struggling to be an artist and keeping your that mm. identity and you know a commercial system and and how to integrate that. I mean, yeah, it seems I, to be very core. Very much so, and I, and I mean, and on the one hand, I think all I think it is true that all art is a self-portrait, and that yeah, what you what who you are will shape your shape the films you make. Whether you're doing a very personal movie, you know, whether whether you're doing Annie Hall or Speed Racer, who you are is going to be very integral to that film. Yeah, um, I was I was listening. Sorry, sorry for the side note, but I was listening to a podcast and w- interviewed Miranda July. And she was kind of insisting the opposite is true of her work. Like she intentionally tries not to be autobiographical or put any stamp of herself. And to me, watching the future, I was like, this has to be a reflection of you know something in <laughs> well, her life. Well, I, or... I, mean, I again, I would say Woody Allen has the same thing where he insists that the characters are not him. And I yeah, don't. I, I guess feel that's like true. I mean, with they... interviews and stuff, you have to take it as I think. I think Miranda July is. Also, whenever she's giving an interview, she's very much a personality, um, and then mm-hmm. she, that's that she's intentionally can, trying to be enigmatic in a way. Or? She, well, yeah, she, well, she's selling movies. She's trying to make yeah. sh- sure that her quote unquote brand isn't uh, because her name is as big a draw as any trailer or anything like that. But that's you know that's all aside. But right, 
And one day she'll be dead, and we'll just be able to look at her movies in the context of her history and (laughs) and know the truth. Basically, the point is kill all artists. Um, Exactly. Because only then can we really know. Um, No, and I don't – but I don't – at the same time, I don't want to reduce everything to, oh, this – everything in a movie must be about them. Um, But I think it is true that uh, this is – you know, I think this is definitely a sports movie the way that only – two nerds who are are more concerned about art than sports could do where For it's sure. where it's not about uh it's not about whether he wins or loses it's about proving to an unjust system that there is still an integrity to the thing and i think it's very much like red belt in that degree interesting i thought i, I, think, was, re- uh, I, thought I was reaching go ahead. Go ahead, <laughs> no but like it's funny too because i remember kind of being excited that michelle gondry was going to do the green hornet because I was thinking, oh, you know, I mean, he's he's sort of got that playful nature about him that maybe him tackling a comic book movie would be akin to something like this with the Wachowski brothers going, you know, balls out and going crazy and doing yeah. their interpretation of an of a cartoon. That's not the case though with Michelle Gondry. I don't know if it's just the hot the system got the best of him, but I feel like there is that insane sort of big-budget blockbuster maybe Michelle Gondry will make someday that's kind of like this, just so all over the map. Who knows if it'll be a box office success, but I was thinking of of, of uh, Michelle Gondry a lot in this movie. Yeah. Um, just well, just, kind of, just I can see that. Yeah. I, I, I love the... There's, there was actually a chud... A, sort of a mini chud list, I believe maybe a year ago, mm-hmm. um, about maybe longer, about uh, best transitions... Uh, like there's like there's a very famous uh, transition in Brotherhood of the Wolf. Um, that's the transition the, where the transitions from is it Monica Bellucci? Yeah, I think it's from the mountains to Monica Bellucci. I think. Okay, yeah, yeah, and I think it's yeah, it's I think it's Monica Bellucci to the mountains. But basically, it's uh, a close up of Mon- Monica Bellucci's tits, and then CGI transforms her tits into mountains, and then it turns into like a helicopter shot. Anyway, uh, it's like fun transitions. I think this movie could have been that whole list. I like, <laughs> like people's <laughs> people's like people's heads just like fucking like chimps wiping the screen for a new scene and yeah, stuff this like has that. To have some <laughs> kind of record for the number of, of wipes. In a I movie. like the wipes a lot. They never got. Oh, they're brilliant. Yeah, I never they're, got. It, I never playful. felt like. Yeah, and that's what I mean. I never felt like it was headache inducing. I I was kind of just and amazed. The zooms and. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't because I don't think it's frenetic in that way that a lot of action cinema is these days, and I don't. So whether it's ADD, it's certainly very quick paced, and it's certainly very silly, and it's but and it certainly can you know jump from scene to scene using the strangest of cinematic techniques. But because it's shot well, and because you always know what's going on, uh, and because everything is really legitimately exciting, I don't think it really is headache inducing in the way that. Mm-hmm. Something like a Tony Scott movie would be, Ugh. where he's yeah. that's that's yeah. I think the example of an ADD. Like I think Domino is a better example of an ADD film gone bad. I think this is, and maybe natural um, and, natural <laughs> killers. But to go to, that. to go back to the sort of artist thing, I think that might be at least for me why I love this movie so much, as opposed to because I really did figure well, it's a racing movie, it's a sports movie. They're gonna they're gonna just plug in the story into this very. Um, you know, typical sort of template of of underdog wins the race, and da, da. but it isn't about that. Um, and I think it's more intriguing what it actually does. Um, and I think that's actually what make make the movie and the story so special is because it's not 
it's it doesn't feel by the numbers in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a legitimate investment in its characters and story. Uh, the only thing I would say, Matthew Fox is kind of dead. I love Matthew Fox. I don't. I kind of agree with. I kind of agree with Jim. He's kind of. Just a little. I think too... he maybe could have had more fun with it. Just a little too passive. Uh, he had so much fun, like all the the cute little smirks and his, his involvement in the fights and his gravelly. The only way you'll ever defeat these people is to bring them to justice. And like how he's like very like I think it matches the tone. I know perfect. it matches the tone for sure. Yeah, it's, it's definitely it's it's something you'd you'd expect from that kind of a character in a cartoon. Um, I love when he breaks out into a smile and gets proud of speed or, you know, he cold cocks someone and kind of smirks. Like, I love the hidden flashes of humor that come out of I it. Like, I like how in this mm-hmm. movie they were still able to do their kung fu fight. Yeah, me too. Oh, yeah. With the non I love the I love the fight sequence with the whole family. That was, oh, so, that was so awesome. Yeah, where, where it cuts from that anime rushing background of, yeah. ah, and then it just, they're just, and then it, and then instead of cutting to them already have landed it, mm-hmm. it it cuts from them jumping, and then it cuts back to them just running and grabbing yeah. the, the the ninja's legs. Oh, that's like that's so that's like a really small thing that really makes all the difference. It's very fun, and it sort of makes me really want to rewatch Scott Pilgrim, Pilgrim again because that's something I didn't feel as emotionally involved in, you know. And I felt I was kind of let down well, by that fact. Like I thought, oh, maybe the romance is going to really sweep me I off think, my feet. But. I, I, I think the problem with Scott Pilgrim, I think Scott Pilgrim is as good, maybe even better directed than this. Um, but I think my my main problem with Scott Pilgrim is, and again, this might just be uh, a, indicative of the fact that I read all the books, um, is that it just feels rushed, and I feel like there's no way to do do that in one movie. It's just there's because yeah. I feel in the books it's so much about their relationship growing, and then I feel that in but in wouldn't the movie, have all the, having all that context from the books sort of enhance your experience of watching? No, them? no, because I'm I I don't. Because I watch it, like I don't like the Hitchhiker's Guide movie for the same reason. It feels too rushed. Um, it's just, it's. Yeah, I kind of like it. I uh, no, but it's I. It, it's not on. Screen. I get what you mean. I get what you mean totally, Patrick. Even though I'm, I, I don't have the specific example of uh, Scott Pilgrim because I haven't read the books. But you know, I, I completely understand where you know even Harry Potter that has like sixteen hours of yeah. fucking mm-hmm. material. Same kind of deal. I think we talked about that um, with Stephen Ray Morris on the Tim Burton episode a little bit, where it's it's. Right. It's the same thing where there are just certain things that not everything is perfectly suited for to be adapted into a film because a film has certain limitations um, with the kind of stories it can tell. Uh, yeah, and I think I think Edgar Wright did the job of his life directing Scott Pilgrim, but I think it's probably his weakest screenplay. But and, no, that's probably and I true. think that's something that you know Speed Racer doesn't have because it's not an adaptation. It's specifically written for the film it's yeah i was surprised uh about 10 minutes in i looked at the box and i saw it was over two hours long and i was like i Uh-oh. was like i i was really worried yeah um, i even told you on twitter good luck yeah i didn't think i didn't think i was gonna I, I, like that kind yeah, of but... energy is only going to be annoying after two hours but it isn't because it's no. a well-paced movie because the story yeah, is... yeah you never feel it no Mm-mm. And that's the thing, and that ultimately about this, you know, Speed Racer and the perception of it that really, not upsets me, but it frustrates me that a lot, you know, so-called film people just dismiss it outright. Because I believe in the first 20 minutes of that movie, that sequence, uh, which is kind of a, you know, it's a montage type thing that the Wachowskis started in The Matrix Reloaded, where they have this long montage, but it's broken up by narration and 
you know, certain small sequences are fleshed out a little bit, but it's like a 20-minute montage almost. Right. And they did it again in, there's another one in V for Vendetta, uh, right before kind of the whole plan goes into action. And then they did it to open Speed Racer. And that 20 minutes, I feel like, is like such a triumphant piece of filmmaking where they're routing between two different points in time. Yeah. You know, it's very specific, or two different action sequences that are both paralleling and mirroring each other, thematically commenting on each other. And then they're also telling a lot of background story yeah, and tying everything together. And it's right. just, it's it's a fucking symphony of exposition and action filmmaking, and it's it's just beautiful. And for, a, even if the tone and, like, the the... You know, the unique tone of it being a very much a kid's film, but still sophisticated. Even if that tone doesn't register with you, I don't know how a true film fan can watch that kind of filmmaking and not appreciate what this, you know, what this movie is bringing to the table. And that's, and I feel, yeah, and it's, and it's done in a way that it feels integral. And as opposed to, like, the montage in V for Vendetta actually kind of annoys me because the prob like i feel like that that just feels like well we have a lot of story to tell and we don't have a lot of time so we're going to cram a lot of it in this and uh, i feel i feel like that feels uh, i don't think v for vendetta is poorly paced but it just feels a bit rushed in that it, it just right. keeps it uh, it doesn't like allow anyone to breathe on questions or philosophical ideas or emotional beats um, whereas speed racer at the very beginning when you do that you set it up and you you're you're setting up the emotional lives and the emotional histories of uh, pretty much everyone who's going to be on screen for the next two hours. Like it's it's a great piece of filmmaking. It's it's yeah. a wonderful sequence and it's very important. I can sort of understand somebody being put off by the tone and you know, like I said, I, no, have, no, I have a couple I, of friends. If you're not gonna, if, if you're not, but first twenty minutes or whatever, if you're not into it, if you don't like you, you have to be up for silly. You have yeah. to be. You have to be up. Yeah, like I can get it if you can't dig a movie that has a monkey joke or the girl saying hubba hubba. <laughs> like I can get that, but the craft of it is unimpeachable. Right, and it's, I, yeah, and I think it's I think it's a big step up um, from because I, I remember once I was sick and I just put on the. TV and whatever was on, I decided I was going to watch. And I remember watching, um, I think it was one, I don't even remember which Robert Rodriguez kids movie it was. It might have been Shark Boy <laughs> and Lava Girl or whatever it was. And I thought it was horrible. Like, that to me was annoying. And obviously, he sort of relies on the green screen technology. But he also doesn't care about character. No, that's what I'm right. saying. <laughs> like, there's a lot of heart and soul into what, what the Wachowski brothers and it wasn't this movie. And it wasn't until I went back and I looked, I never considered Wachowski's people who cared about that sort of thing. Like, I, because I, I, I just remembered them, like, my memory of The Matrix had been colored by the sequels. Um, and my memory of Bound wasn't good. But yeah, they're like. They're really good with actors and really good at writing characters. They love film and it shows yeah. in, the, in the movies. Even if they don't have the best, you know, handle all the time on, for example, building the romance between Neo and Trinity, they always genuinely love their characters. Uh, yeah, I totally get that sense. And I'm excited. <laughs> Hopefully they come out with something, but they're definitely those filmmakers who take their time. Yeah, um, um, I was actually going to ask because I feel, Ren, you have a better uh, sort of pulse of film news than either of us do. Do you know what they're working on? Or Yeah, they're working on a, a film called Cloud Atlas, and they're partnering with Tom Tequor, if I'm t- pronouncing his name oh, right, who yeah. uh, he made like Perfume and Lola Rent. Um, and it's a, it's a very weird movie. It's an adaptation of a, of a very strangely structured book that's kind of a, it's comprised of, I believe, six short stories, but they reflect on each other. So you have 
the start of one story and then it morphs into another story and it goes all the way to the sixth story and then it picks back up and goes in reverse order so it starts and ends with the same story um and i mean it's got hugo weaving it's got tom hanks and i think you know that almost almost sounds like a red violin (laughs) where uh you're seeing all these different stories about this one violin and how they sort of go into each other Mm. Well, it travels through different time periods. Like there's a, you know, there's a dystopian future kind of thing. There's a something that takes place on like a, a Victorian ship or something. Like it takes place through all different time periods, um, and it's kind of unclear like how much they're directing. Like if they're doing three of the sequences and Tikra's doing three, or how it's getting divided up. But they are oh, yeah, at yeah. least co co directing. So that that's their next project and something they've been working on. They also have a Cobalt Neutral. Um, which is the sort of <clears throat> supposedly about the you know the the Iraqi soldiers and there's like a homosexual love story and it was the sort of mm. thing that they were doing tests for kind of in secret and it was really kind of vague and I, I don't know that much you, more information has come out about when you, it. When you say tests, do you mean like testing actors or like screen? Yeah, tests? like that. That was the thing where they they shot. Uh, some kind of test sequence or something with Ariana Huffington and she tweeted about it. So everybody thought that they were shooting this weird future Iraq movie in secret. And (laughs) that didn't turn out to be the case, but it's kind of is it's, it's a little vague. All right. But I'm excited for any of it because I, if anything, I feel like speed racer is a, a very distinct amplification of their, talent and ability like i think it's a step up in yeah. just terms of filmmaking and if you've just gotten a blu-ray player yeah go get this yeah I, <laughs> everyone that's what everyone that's demo material possible everyone insisted that upon me so i ordered the blu-ray and yeah and you know what's weird my first dvd matrix oh really <laughs> yeah that was my first DVD. mine too that was yeah. the first dvd to ever sell a million copies was the matrix oh, see those guys they know what they're doing mm-hmm <laughs> Unlike this other Tom Tyquer, who I'm not a fan of. He might be a director we can cover in the future, because um, I'm sure there are people who are pro who run Lola Run, and um, I, I, I'm just looking at his... I'm one of them, actually. I, I'm looking at his filmography, I'm kind of like, wow. International, pretty bad, except for that shootout at the Guggenheim, that was cool. Uh, yeah, I don't have any love for that, but I do. I, I actually have a lot of appreciation. A for lot of perfume. people. A lot of people love perfume, so I want to see. It's that. a weird movie, though. Yeah. Like it's hmm. it's not a knockout of the part, but there's a lot of like really interesting stuff hmm. coming out of that movie. Well, we'll consider him for the future, but I think very quickly I'd like to touch on on Bound because yeah, that, that which was, we've touched on a little bit, but yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's an amazing movie, and I think how you know simple the story and setup is and it's just like you know obviously they're fans of double indemnity only they wanted to you know uh in, in again inverse or invert i should say the 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 noir film and present two very very hot <laughs> characters in in that they're, they're big center for tilly fan jim <sighs> yeah yeah <laughs> i am no, no, but um, no, but for serious, the the scene where Jennifer Tilly is seducing Gina Gershon has so much like legitimate erotic because I I I very much thought all right I'm gonna watch this movie because this seems like a soft core porno but it was also made by the Wachowskis so maybe there's other things that are good about it but like <laughs> not the, to mention that it is like almost literally their audition tape to yeah. be able to direct the Matrix well, yeah. it, it really is uh, and it, and it has the same it has the same sort of art design of the interior of the buildings where everything just seems kind of rusted and yeah um, aged certain, art deco kind yeah, of thing yeah there's a col- certain color to everything yeah, but 
that the, the scene where Jennifer Tilly is seducing Gina Gershon is so like erotically charged and so powerful in like a really legitimate way that isn't just you know like a you know like a, the shitty erotic thriller I thought it would be, um, and even sort of. You know, the, they have, there's like a single. It's not even a sex scene. It's a sex shot <laughs> because because they're. It's funny because the the <coughs> it just uh, goes me. over the room. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Starts, the way the camera pans, yeah. they It's it's uh, well, it's the, those, as, those the, the camera were... movement is as sensual as you know these these two beautiful women having sex. Like, well, give them give them mad props for actually you know hiring um, a sexpert. Um, a uh, a uh, sex educator, uh, Susie Bright. Did they? Yeah. For what? What'd she do? She uh, choreographed the sex scenes, and she also has a a bit part in the film in the bar. That's great. That's really? Yeah. They had a so I'm I'm assuming she's like a lesbian or something, mm-hmm. and they, they yeah, go, we don't know how sex lesbians positive have sex. feminist right yeah mm-hmm. and then oh that's amazing I know that's <laughs> great I didn't even that's know that. why it's it feels. They had a knack erotic. for affiliating themselves with, with really interesting, talented people to to help them accomplish what they want to accomplish. Yeah, that's um, another skill of theirs. Yeah, and you know, when they get out of Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon, those aren't those aren't two actresses who do good all the time. Those are, right. you know, <laughs> but they get really good performances out of them, and they and the the ticking clock of the movie just is more exciting than the sex, <laughs> which is not anything I would expect because the I, sex is great. I but. think one of the more interesting symbolic motifs is kind of just how hands are really emphasized in this movie. I mean, if you notice how many, like, obviously the hands are an erotic um, feature. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, like, there's just the, the way the mafia treats, you know, the hands when they're going to cut somebody off and cut, cut off one of their fingers. fingers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that sort of you know plays itself off a lot. But there's a lot of close-ups of hands, and I found that to be really interesting. How Gina Gershon's sort of character it's talks about using that as like you know, a, you know, a sexual um, object of sorts. Well, I, you know, I mean, there's clearly they're getting a, they're getting a sexual excitement from this well, heist yeah. sort of a thing, and it's but like the first introduction of I mean Gina Gershon going into Jennifer Tilly is almost like you know. Um, <laughs> I, like I feel like it's not just you know arousing; it's it's literal. <coughs> like yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. about to enter your life, right? <laughs> sort of speak. So I find I find like this is because I always thought you know oh yeah this is kind of you know another Coen Brothers esque blood simple you know Hitchcock movie little Tarantino all that sort of combined. Um, I don't know. I feel I feel like there's they elevate it. They elevate that style. You know, into something that and it's, yeah, their and own, it, and not in a De Palma way, where it's just right. like soup. Like I think uh, we were in the, on the De Palma episode, we were talking about uh, Matt Gamble was telling us alternate because he hates De Palma so much. <laughs> he was he, telling us alternatives uh, um, yeah, he, to he, De Palma. He mentioned Bound. Yeah. Oh, did he mention Bound? Yeah, it's, okay. I'm pretty sure he did. Because I just thought like about passing, that's yeah. something I thought about when I saw this. I'm like, no, this is actually a Hitchcockian like thriller that. Where the style is used to tell the story. So, yeah, Bound's great. Pantoliano is fucking great. Joey yeah. Pants rules in this movie. He's, I don't know, this might be my favorite performance of him. I mean, obviously, he's pretty much the lead, so it's nice to see him have a fully, not just a supporting role for once. I, then you definitely should check out Sopranos. You'd love his arc. It's a very great. similar character. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Have either of you read his book? No. What, what book oh, is Oh, he's it? got an autobiography? Yeah, he's got an autobiography. Awesome. Um, 
it's just it's really good it's kind of a new york kid story growing up acting but uh i read it back you know kind of back in the day of when the matrix was getting really big and it's a really good book you should check out cool definitely he's such a fascinating storyteller and kind of quirky guy he seems like it (laughs) yeah definitely and he talks about how uh you know in the sopranos how he says who uh how that came from his mother (laughs) it's always fun yeah um all right. Now the Wachowski brothers, they didn't really do a lot of commentaries other than Bound, but I, I listened. They're to very that. reclusive. Yeah, totally. That, that was part of their contract for the Matrix sequels is that they wouldn't have to do any press. Wow. Um, yeah, I think they're probably some of the most reclusive filmmakers that, at least working on that kind of a scale. They sure, yeah, didn't, they yeah. sure didn't talk a lot at all during the commentary. It was mostly Joey Pants and Jennifer Tilly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Jennifer Tilly is a trip. She and loves. they'll lie. They're one of those that if they do get put on camera, they'll lie or just joke so much that nothing they say yeah. can be really taken yeah. too. I got that feeling there's a making of documentary on the Matrix DVD, and there was sort of that feeling where they were just fucking with the camera. Isn't there like a philosophy, like a philosophical <laughs> Yeah, there's Philosopher uh, West and some others. There's also a commentary of critics that hate the movie. Really? Yeah. Oh, that would be <clears> fascinating. Or the sequence, at least. Wow. That'd be fascinating. I would love to see that in more DVDs. Well, yeah, it's been it's been years since I've listened to it. Uh, I didn't get to re-listen to it, so I don't remember hmm. if it's actually worth a shit. But uh, it is on there. So that would be interesting. Like on Dark City, have Ebert do a commentary, then another critic who hated it. That would be cool because <laughs> I love that. So I love hearing both sides. Yeah, I think pretty much the only other example I can think of of that is uh, this isn't even the same thing, but on the. On the, and we talked about. I think we talked about this when we talked about commentaries on the Tim Burton episode. But uh, Soderbergh's uh, commentary on the Limey with the screenwriter—they oh, yeah. have an argument about uh, the changes Soderbergh made. Mm-hmm. So that's that's it. and that was interesting too. So I think we're ready. We uh, give our top three Wachowski's movies. I believe oh, so. Yeah, it's it's kind of tough this, for me though. This is coming. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. kind of struggling with I'm number gonna one. Go, I'm going to go with number one, Speed Racer. Number two, Bound. And I don't think Bound is a better movie than The Matrix, but I like it more. Um, and then number three, The Matrix. I'm going to go with Bound as number one. I mean, mm-hmm. it's my first introduction to the Wachowskis, and it still holds up. I lo- It's one of those movies I can watch you know, once a year and never get tired of it or whatever. So Bound, Speed Racer, Matrix for me. Um. I, if if I can be really cheap, I think I'd just really just have to say the Matrix, the Matrix, the Matrix, and then Speed Racer <laughs> number four. Like there comes a point where you know, again, like I had, I, I I completely believe if you gave me the footage of the Matrix, I could recut that movie to frame accuracy. <laughs> like it, it kind of it kind of got to that level. I, yeah. I was reading simulac- Simulacra and Simulations, fourteen year old, which. <laughs> I, I got through it as best I could. Uh, I don't know how much I retained from it, but just, just shit like that. So that's but, great. Uh, that, yeah, that, that's probably great. the Matrix, Speed Racer, and then maybe Bound. But uh, the reason I got all quiet during the Bound was discussion is I wasn't able to rewatch it, and it's been oh, like ten years since I saw right, it. Right. I didn't right. get a chance to rewatch the Matrix sequels, unfortunately. But I'm. I gotta say, I'm. I'm. I'm always excited to hear when a movie changes somebody's life, or when 
you know, it yeah. inspires you to get into film school. That, and that's that's the that's the basis of a really good book called the the film that the film I that know. changed my life. I, I totally got to read that for sure. Yeah, I, that I'll, book is sitting about two feet away from me. Yeah, right I'll now. lend it. I'll lend it to you, Jim. It's real good. Yeah, um, I'd be excited to read that because to me, I like I re- I totally relate to that. Like getting so worked up about something well, like you know when pulp fiction came out i was 17 and that sort of changed my yeah, life and annie hall for me yeah <clears throat> you know and, and i i like that there it's all it's always movies that are very for, formal uh formalistic mm-hmm. uh very uh because it because it makes you aware of the filmmaking and i think that's the big switch that gets turned on yeah is you don't think about you don't think about in terms of man these actors are doing a story like it's you think about the people behind the camera right right um no, and it, that's a uh, I, I do want to say that is a you know a big reason i think the inception was such a big deal for people is that it, it poked you know for people that really love the matrix or were around for it you know it kind of hit that same spot and yeah. for i think a new generation of kids teenage or whatever that it's definitely that and i don't mean to to kind of pimp daddy's shit but if you uh look up uh me and nick did a a a re-review of our review of Inception, our tag team, and uh, I actually go into pretty heavy detail about how I feel like Inception and The Matrix relate to each other, right? And kind of how they pass that torch. So I, I well, don't definitely. mean to like pimp my shit, but that, uh, that I do well, go into. Well, this, definitely this, is, this is the perfect time to pimp yeah. your shit. Uh, we can, <laughs> cause, yeah, because this is what we do at the yeah, end of the show. Dot com. Um, he recently did a very interesting article about Christopher Nolan and his career, and he was very kind enough. He linked to the actual our actual Christopher Nolan podcast episode. Great. Thanks. Um, well, it was a good episode, so no problem. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, and by the way, if you live in Chicago, the film that changed my life, they're doing screenings. Um, I, I got the John Waters Wizard of Oz one, which was incredible. Yeah, I so uh, wish that's I awesome. Like, I and that. uh, the yeah. next one they're doing is Kimberly Pierce, who did uh, Boys Don't Cry, um, huh. and it's a screening of The Godfather. So really? Oh, nice. Are they going to do Edgar and American Werewolf? Because Edgar loves to no, show that up would at be, screenings and talk. Would, I, I can only imagine. I don't. I mean, I'm not. I'm not privy to the behind the scenes, but uh, I can only imagine that would be uh, be a one that would be imminent. They got to get Nicholas Winding Refn. His the movie that changed his life was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh yeah, there you go. Nice. That would be great. Yeah, I can see that his movies are very tech, very focused on textures. And sort of flesh yeah. and skin and stuff. Again, got to see Bleeder. I yeah, don't even yeah, know yeah. if it's out on DVD, but just find that movie. All right. Well, uh, if you want to uh, tweet us, um, you can find me at Patrick Rapol Or Instant Jim for me. Uh, and Ren, I believe is yours, is just at Ren Brown. Yep. Ren with two N's, no W. Yep. All right. And then uh, you can read uh, Ren's writing on Chud.com. He's probably going to be doing a piece... Very actually, by the time this comes out, it might already be out on uh, Boardwalk Empire season two. Great. Yep. Hopefully, we'll be catching that later tonight. And uh, just a real quick, uh, make sure you seek out our video podcasts that we do every week. We put a lot of effort into those, so I always like to absolutely very good. Oh, great. Um, and uh, you want to visit us, Directors Club dot com, and email us at Directors Club Podcast at gmail dot com. I couldn't be more excited to uh, talk about. Our next director, Errol Morris, who mm-hmm. I consider to be nice, definitely my favorite documentary filmmaker, and guest Jay Cheel of FilmJunk.com, who mm-hmm. is also a documentary filmmaker in his own right. Very talented guy. Yeah, I, I mean, we're, we're definitely going to talk about it more when he yeah. comes on, but uh, if, if you get a chance to see Beauty Day, uh, which is his feature documentary he did recently, it's great. Go it see is. it. Definitely. So we're excited about the next episode, so join us in a couple weeks mm-hmm. for that. And again, uh, iTunes reviews, uh, ratings, all of those things, uh, very helpful. 
um, and getting more people to hear us. Yeah. So, Send, uh, yeah. Excellent. All right. All right. Thanks, Ren, for being on the show. It was great having Thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Absolutely. Love- okay, everybody. See you soon. Yeah. Bye. The Wachowskis of Edge. Became not just one of the most talked about movies of the year, but of the decade. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Sound like Don Pardo. Yeah. Huh. Somebody named Patrick Ripall says, Boy, I hope Jesse Thorne tells that Chinaman joke on the next Jordan Jesse Go. That's what they call in the business an evergreen. Hey, thanks for zinging me, because after... 400 hours of Jordan Jesse Goes, I accidentally told a story that I once told two years ago because it was appropriate. I couldn't remember. Give it a rest at Patrick Ripall. You know what you do to him? You block him. Yeah. Someone says some shit to me. I don't have time Blocked. to read your reply. I fucking block him. Unfollowed. Just block him. If I'm reading responses, I want to read about how great I am, not about how shitty I am. <laughs>